Oh, well, hi, Jared. This is the fringe. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you? Doing all right, you? I'm doing well. You can't see me, can you? Uh, nope. Well, I can see your profile picture. Yeah. It's probably a permissions thing because, come on. Yeah, sometimes Hangouts, like, opens in its own window and then because of that it it can't show like the this tab is asking for permission to view the webcam because like yeah. it's not a normal tab ui <laughs> oh my gosh come on hangouts get your shit together yeah and, and all these are pieces that like google controls directly you'd think they would uh they'd have yeah, this together right? <laughs> okay let's see i think nope that didn't work <laughs> come on well, um, we can also try Skype. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, like me being able to see your face isn't that important. Okay. Um, if you say so. How do I sound? You sound great. Great. Yeah. You getting any background noise? It's pretty quiet in here, but we don't really have like a a studio or anything. Yeah. No. No. I I'm not getting any like background hiss or anything uh i'm not detecting any like weird echoes or anything like that so sweet that's awesome i'd say we're good to go um and i'm uh i'm recording you on my end as well just in case um in case something goes wrong (laughs) yeah (laughs) that sounds good i am starting up my end now so we are recording here as well sweet um i suppose well, no, if I'm recording your end as well, then we don't really need to do like a clap for synchronization or anything. That should be fine. Yeah, we should be fine. I'll clap for you if you want. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah. Sweet. Um, so, yeah. Shall we just get started? I guess so. Where did I put my questions? Here we go. Okay, so, um, yeah, Taylor, first things first. Can you introduce yourself and uh, what you what your role is at iFixit? Absolutely. My name is Taylor Dixon. I am a tech writer slash teardown engineer at iFixit. Um, and we do a lot of things, and I'm sure we'll get into this. Um, but my specific role on the tech writing team is to make guides, which are guides for how to repair your device. And Also, I occasionally work with the video team to make videos, and the tech writing team is also responsible for the teardowns, which are kind of like editorial-style device breakdowns where we take the newest device and take it apart, oftentimes destructively, um, just to determine how repairable it is or isn't, and... Yeah, that's kind of my role and what my team does at I fix it. Nice. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to rearrange my questions a little bit because this feeds nicely into like, okay, what what kinds of resources does I fix it provide? Um, oh yeah, either on their website or also through other means. So ifixit.com. Uh, quick plug, go there. Um, <laughs> ifixit.com has a ton of resources. Uh, what it is, it's a wiki site that um, is built to be like a, an all-encompassing repair manual. And so anybody can go on and make a guide for how to fix their car or how to fix their phone. Um, 
And yeah, it's also a forum for asking repair questions. And also ipixit.com is home to our parts store. So we sell parts for different phones or other devices. And so it's kind of like it is ideally an all-in-one repair stop. Everything you could need to repair your device from the parts to the information, you can find it, I fix it. Yeah, and I saw that you guys also sell like like um, just like screwdriver sets and stuff like that. Oh yeah, we sorry, I, we also sell tools that uh, do pretty well. So since this is like a yeah a wiki, anybody can go and edit it. Um, but you're on like the content team. So how do those two kind of different sides integrate with each other? Is there is there something that you guys are allowed to do that like general community members aren't allowed to do or? That's a great question. So yeah, since the site is a wiki, anybody can get on and edit. Um, so it the the whole site kind of runs like a forum where certain users have permissions to do certain things. And the more the more time you spend on a fix it and the more you contribute, the more reputation you get. And then like the more things you can edit, I guess. Um, so the guides that my team makes are all set to infinity rep, which essentially means only iFixit members can edit them. Okay. Um, but like, let's say if you make a guide, the guide would be editable by anyone with the same rep that you have or more rep than you have, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so it's kind of hierarchical. Yeah, it's definitely hierarchical. And users can suggest edits to guides that were made by someone with more rep than them, or alternatively, they can comment on them and let them know. So when I when I go on the website and I see a like um, you know, a teardown that that ranks a particular device on a one out of ten or a one to ten uh uh scale on fixability. Is, is that always going to be something that's written by the content team or can community members also write those? Community members can also write a teardown. Um, our teardowns will be, I guess, they will show that they are written by iFixit because they will have that repair score. Um, but yeah, anybody can go do it. The, the ones that look official, I guess, the most official are usually ours. <laughs> cool. Um, so yeah, let's, let's kind of get bigger picture here. Um, since it's, you know, if, if you think about like the general person who buys a device and then, you know, gets a cracked screen or whatever, like it is much easier to just send in the device back to the manufacturer to get fixed. So like, why, why do we care if a device is user repairable? We care that a device is user repairable because sometimes you're right it is easier to send it back to the manufacturer but there are many many other times where the manufacturer has the highest price or the manufacturer does not live close to you um so you, you would have to send your device away for you know who knows how long as opposed to walking down the street and having it repaired um one one comparison we like to make is um to cars so imagine if you always had to take your car back to the dealership to get it fixed. Everyone kind of knows that the dealership charges more 
than your local mechanic. And the same kind of applies to fixing your phone or other electronics. Oftentimes the manufacturer can just kind of set whatever price they want, whereas your local fixer can kind of work for cheaper. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, if we, if we, if our only option is the manufacturer, then it's a natural monopoly. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And the manufacturers aren't always around. For example, uh, I'm a big fan of the Pebble smartwatches. Hey. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And you know what? I am interviewing uh, one of the members of the Rebel team later on for this episode. Oh, my as well. goodness. I'm so jealous. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, like like you know, Pebble uh, was unfortunately bought up, swallowed by a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. And um, if it weren't for Rebel and like the post-manufacturer life, then we wouldn't be able to wear these still. Yeah, yeah, and like yeah, and, and in the in the car metaphor as well, like um, if if I take a road trip and I'm off somewhere where there aren't any dealerships and I have car problems then like well the uh the local mechanics had better be able to service this thing otherwise like you're toast exactly yeah um so what goes what what goes into making a device like more repairable when when you guys are ranking them like you know on the one to ten scale what kinds of things are you looking for so there are a lot of things we're looking for it depends obviously from device to device kind of what makes it repairable and what things, what what considerations we give, I guess. Like we, we don't expect tiny earbuds to be as repairable as a giant laptop, let's say. And so we, we try to be fair with our score, but ultimately like it's really hard to put all this information into a 10 point scale. So, um, but really what we look for the most is that you can put the device back together cleanly without it being destroyed or modeled too much. Um, and then after that, it's um, disposable things like batteries that we really want to be able to access. And then any other failure prone part or like a screen or like something that's used often like a headphone jack. Uh, so we want to make sure those are swappable or I mean, even not swappable, it's fixable, you know. Mm-hmm. And then there are always trade-offs like durability versus repairability where you kind of, or manufacturers will make something more durable. And so we want to give them credit for that, but sometimes that hinders the repairability. And so it's kind of a tightrope that we and manufacturers walk when we make these scores and they make the devices. Right. So I'm... I... I imagine that that is a lot of things like uh, dust ingress and like waterproofness. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, yeah, and of course, I I come at this from from the perspective of somebody who has like built my own desktops. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, you that's can't... a repairable defect. Exactly. Yeah, like it, and even you know, even like I can buy a desktop that is made by you know a, a manufacturer like like i buy power or something like that you know who mm-hmm. who you know make these things to be very easily repairable uh and modular but at the same time it's still like you know 
when I built it in the first place, I know where everything is. And I <laughs> Yeah. That's another thing about uh, fixing something yourself. Uh, going back to the last question, when you fix something yourself and you don't take it to the manufacturer, you kind of, you develop a relationship with it. As weird as that sounds, you, you get to know it and it, it really does kind of enhance your ownership of that thing in a really cool way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, something that I hadn't really considered until I, until I started reading like the teardowns of phones and things uh, is that like adhesives are uh, a big, big part of this. Um, Absolutely. Because those those don't come into play when you've got a, a larger device like a like a desktop. Yes, that's totally true. And adhesives are exactly what I'm talking about when I when I mentioned durability and repairability trade-offs, um, because adhesive, like you said, is mostly used for ingress protection, at least for some devices, uh, like the AirPods, which are totally unrepairable, are basically just like dipped in adhesive, and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> um, but phones. Most phones use adhesive now, and so you just kind of have to adapt and learn to work around it. Uh, but then there are some, even some laptop manufacturers that are using a lot of adhesive, like the newer MacBook Pros, and that can just be a pain. Yeah, yeah. Um, this also ties into the like right to repair movement, um, which I, you know, saw that iFixit has some some stuff down in the footer of the website uh, linking to things relating to to that. Um, but I know that iFixit aren't the only ones who are involved in that. So, like, what what is what is this movement? Who's involved in it, and what what are its goals? So, the right to repair movement is it when you ask who is involved, there are a couple answers. One, the first answer is everyone is involved. Uh, um, at least everyone who cares about owning their devices, I guess. Um, the second answer to who is involved is a bunch of people. Um, there are a couple corporations like iFixit or companies, I guess, not corporations. Um, and then we have, there is a list on repair.org, which is the uh, like, hub website for all repair right to repair information um and you can kind of scroll through and see every single person who is involved or has donated to the campaign um so yeah check that out and check repair.org out for sure uh the second part of your question which is what is the movement is well the answer is the uh repair right to repair movement is a movement trying to enact legislature that will guarantee property rights and guarantee equal access to parts and repair information. So just like your car, we want the repair information for all electronic devices to be available to everyone, or at least, you know, repair shops so that you don't have to go back to the manufacturer. And ideally, this bill, should it pass somewhere, would also include uh, parts availability because, you know, a lot of what we do is we work with 
company, foreign companies who make, you know, knockoff sounds bad, but they're, they're kind of knockoff parts. We, we can't get parts straight from Apple or mm-hmm. straight from Google. Third party alternatives. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a great term. <laughs> and these parts actually are surprisingly good most of the time. Um, but it would be just amazing if we could just go to Apple and say, hey, we need 300 iPhone screens for next week. Can you send those to us? Um, but that's just not possible. Right. And and that still would give like Apple just a monopoly on like manufacturing all of the replacement parts. Um, yeah, for sure. That's true. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a very different, like the, the smaller you get, with these devices like the more unfeasible it is to to want all of the different components to be nice and modular you know yeah exactly Um, like i wouldn't like i i expect that if i want to replace my graphics card in my desktop you know i can just take one out and put the next one in but Mm -hmm. that's i would definitely not expect that of my phone or even of my laptop yeah and so those those are all kind of just uh, concessions that you make as devices get smaller, but there are things that can be replaceable no matter how small, or can or should be replaceable no matter how small the device is, like the battery. Mm-hmm. Um, like it is genuinely difficult to find a pair of wireless earbuds that you can replace the battery in, but that battery is for sure going to die. So, in two or three years, you know those headphones are just dead. And you have to use them with a cable or just throw them in a landfill, which is exactly what we're trying to prevent. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and especially since all of these, like, so many of these things have to be manufactured, have to be designed to fit within a particular chassis. Yeah. Uh, and so they're, yeah, which is, like, unique, bespoke battery <laughs> shapes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. Yeah, so like I mean is is something like you know even even the Fairphone which got uh, a 10 out of 10 repairability score from iFixit like all of the components in there I think are still components that are unique to the Fairphone. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um so we're not we're not living in in the truly modular smartphone world. We are not. Unfortunately, <laughs> Google's project already died. So yeah, that would have been amazing. That would have been amazing. It, I I really wonder how that would have changed the landscape of phones. You know, that would have been such an interesting future to live in. Mm-hmm. I suspect that like people like you and I would have been very like all over it. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> the the splash it makes in broader society would have been negligible. That's that's probably very true. <laughs> Yeah, because I'm I, like, even even in the desktop space, you know, like it's very it's very easy to buy a desktop mm-hmm. that is in a nice small case, and you know, it's very attractive. But like, man, opening it up and moving stuff around is a chore. Yeah, I'll be I'll be honest that the desktop I bought is small and compact and beautiful and not modular. Mm. I sinned. Forgive me. <laughs> I do enjoy like working at um, a school district where, of course, you know, all of the like pieces of hardware that they buy um, are, you know, by companies that are making these for like 
corporate uh, environments where, you know, th- these companies want to be able to, like, open up and service the uh, the devices. Um, and so, yeah. like, so, yeah, so that's that's a, a direct feature that uh, is being accounted for. Um, Which yeah. is really good for, like, for that whole field they that that whole field of um business computers i guess is really accounting for a lot of the modularity that has or does trickle down into consumer products um like microsoft's new surface laptop Mm. um i don't know if you watched that press event this week but i did not but i saw the article about it on ifixit (laughs) oh (laughs) good i'm glad so yeah, the the Surface Laptop 1 and 2 were just really, really bad when it came to repairability. They, if you don't know, they had a Alcantara fabric-lined keyboard, and it was a very nice feature, but it was also impossible to remove. And so there was literally no way of getting into the laptop without taking scissors to your Alcantara and just destroying it. Um so what what they did to get into this um, business space, you know, was they redesigned the whole chassis so that the top keyboard surface, the Alcantara surface, just pops off after you remove a couple screws. And so that is a huge win for, I mean, right to repair probably didn't make them do that, obviously, but it, it's a huge win for consumer laptops because that kind of engineering is exactly what we need moving forward yeah yeah um it's it's always interesting um seeing you know when you when you've got any particular laptop in front of you and it's like okay is this one that i'm going to just like open up the bottom case or am (laughs) i going to have to open up the bottom case and then unscrew something in there that lets me pop off the keyboard on the top which lets me like (laughs) yeah (laughs) It's a fun Laptops puzzle. Laptops are uh, really jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if you... Do you have an iPhone by I, chance? I have a Pixel 3. Okay. Um, there's a new game that just came out on Apple Arcade that uh, we like over here. It's called... Uh, oh, geez. I forgot what it's called. Um, anyway, the game is you are a... Oh, it's called Assemble with Care. Um, and it's a game about fixing. It's part of Apple's new arcade uh, subscription gaming platform. Um, but it's very cool. And it's just kind of like you get to fix other people's things. And it's, yeah, I forgot why I brought that up, but it's cool. Go play it. <laughs> nice. And of course, when I Google search for it, I'm seeing a whole bunch of like articles about it and reviews and none of them are links to the actual like app store. <laughs> What's going on? Oh my gosh. It's by us two games. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. They got some serious uh, developer talent on Apple arcade. Awesome. Yeah, man. That, that make that gives me hope that it'll come to Android at some point because like, I think us two has brought all of their games to Android afterwards. That's true, but we don't know what kind of uh, devilish contract Apple made right. sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, the only question. Even like, I mean, uh, yeah, Monument Valley 2, I think, was like announced at 
WWDC. Oh, yeah, I think that was exclusive for a while, but yeah. then it went over. Yeah, yeah. So that gives me hope. Um, that's yeah. a whole separate kind of... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Uh, I think that's everything that I wanted to ask about. Is there is there anything else that you want people to know about repairability or iFixit in particular? Um, I think, I guess if there's one, one last thing that I can say, I would say, don't be afraid to fix something yourself. Uh, fixing things is such a black box to people. People feel like their phone or their laptop is the magical wonder and i mean they are magical wonders let's be honest technology is amazing uh but it works in a specific way because it has to work in a specific way scientifically and all you need to do is look up a guide maybe on ifixit.com and figure out how to open it and you can yes you can seriously fix your device so go for it yeah and like I, I would say that like starting with larger objects is probably a good way to like ease your way into this world. Um, Absolutely. Because in general, it's easier to take apart and put back together like larger, larger things. Yeah, larger things and older things. If you have anything mm-hmm. made before, you know, 2010 when they started gluing everything shut, that's a great place to start. Another advantage of doing older things is that like the stakes aren't as high. Yeah, exactly. You know, like I could take <laughs> apart my mom's Moto G3 and, you know, if I if I mess up, like it doesn't cost as much to replace that. <laughs> exactly. Um, awesome. So, Taylor, one last question for you. All right. Where can people find you on the internet? They can find me at Taylor C Dixon on Twitter and also at Taylor C Dixon on Instagram, but I never post there. Um, and then I guess that's all just, and then on ifixit.com. Sweet. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Ian. This has been great. And let's see now I need to take my bike over to the local repair shop to get its chain replaced. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Getting ready for the winter season. Um, okay. Let's see, Taylor, I'm going to make a google drive folder uh that you can drop your audio file in that sounds great uh, let me find where i want to put that the extra range of 47 here we go create a new folder i can't believe you have a pebble time that's so yeah great. <laughs> <laughs> and i like i think I, I bought this thing uh and then like four months later like right after i reviewed it for uh-huh. for um second opinion our reviews show like a month later they announced that they were being bought by by uh oh. fitbit and i was like well <laughs> now i have to update the review <laughs> <laughs> oh the uh so when you work when you apply it i fix it they have you make a sample guide mm. and uh i destroyed my pebble to making that sample guide to get this job Luckily, I had another one, but nice. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, that's probably the the device that I will I will do a repair on, like attempt to repair on that I am not super confident of my abilities in. <laughs> um, because you know, once like once this thing's battery is like low enough that 
it's not really feasibly usable anymore, then it's like, well, it's, you know. Yeah, either, you got nothing to lose. Uh, yeah, either I resurrect it or like, oh, well, I guess I have to go and find some some other smartwatch to buy. Oh, if only there were another smartwatch to buy. Right. I, I, there's nothing that seems worth it. <laughs> it is so bad. I, I just, uh, I bought an Apple Watch two weeks ago, just like finally ready to succumb to the $400 DSC and just have iMessages on my watch. Um, and it, it's literally not even better than a Pebble. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, yeah, and having an OLED display is nice, but it's just, it's fine. Yeah. So I'm, I'm returning it. They, they announced, like, always on display, and I was like, cool, 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 cool. So we're now catching up to where Pebble was yep. back when they <laughs> launched. <laughs> but your battery life is still worse. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let me paste... Uh that link into our email conversation i suppose i'll also paste it into the hangouts conversation i'll just put it all the places <laughs> okay yeah all righty i will end this recording sweet i suppose i can end mine as well technology can be a pain yeah especially like I uh I thought I was gonna have like all afternoon to to come into the studio and like um play around with the new setup for my soundboard and then uh, all of a sudden my brother needed like a ride to work and so I got in here like half an hour ago and I was like I really hope this works the first time and it oh, has no, I, don't I, mean, I, uh, I actually just got done taking my sister to dance so yep yeah so um let me pull up the questionnaire again. All right, um, Luca will be joining us shortly. Um, he's a in an odd time zone right now, so. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll. Um, I think. I'll shoot off an email with the link to this hangout, just in case, like the notification goes away. Cool. <clears throat> there we go. Awesome. This is an exciting episode for me because uh, I've never gotten this many, this many people like super interested in being guests on one episode all at once before. Yeah, well, we have a lot of contributors for Lineage OS, so um, you know, being kind of an open source foundation type thing. Hey, Luca. Yeah. Uh, do you see me? No. Yes, I can see you. Cool. Okay. Wait. Okay. Here we go. Cool. Awesome. Um, so this is, you know, nobody, nobody needs to fiddle around with like, oh, wait, I wanted to grab my laptop or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, uh, uh, I wasn't expecting it uh, to be today. I must have read the email wrong. Oh, sorry. um, does today work for you? All right. Uh, sorry. Does today work all right for you? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's fine. I, I just, uh, wasn't ready. Okay, cool. Um, Okay, so uh, I guess first, just to for me to make sure that I've got our audio levels reasonable, um, Nolan, can you tell me what you had for breakfast today? Uh, I had two eggs and uh, three slices of bacon. Okay, and Luca? Oh, uh, I had uh, a tea with some biscuits. That's all. Cool. Okay, we look good here. Um, and I started recording, and I'm not going to hit spacebar by accident, so <laughs> hopefully. Um, 
Okay, so can you guys, yeah, please uh, introduce yourselves. Um, in particular, what is your role with Lineage OS? Okay. Nolan first. Okay, sure. Uh, so I'm a device maintainer that does uh, developer relations and some public relations as well. And what was your name? Uh, Nolan Johnson. Um, I guess I suppose the internet knows me by NP Johnson, but cool. And Luca? So um, uh, I'm uh, the director of Lineage. I'm one of the nine directors. And I mainly work on platform, and uh, I also uh, maintain a few devices. And, uh, well, my name is Luca, and uh, you may know me as Luca uh, 02040. <laughs> so, yeah, Lineage OS is a third-party ROM for Android. Um, why, why do third-party ROMs exist in the first place? What's the, what's the uh, motivation for the community to create something like this? Um, well, I, I guess initially off the bat, there are two big ones, um, and Luca may have more to input. Um, the two I can think of are uh, extension of security updates uh, beyond the manufacturer's um, end-of-life date. Um, and then I would say secondarily, the customization features that can be added aftermarket that might not pass Google's TTS. Um, a super popular one back in the day was uh, saving your photographs to an external SD card, because I know that there was some... Uh, some talk back in the day about that not passing Google CTS, but on a third-party ROM, you could do that. So, Yeah, nowadays it's uh, way uh, smaller, the footprint we had to our changes, but uh, in the initial days, there were many limitations imposed by Android, and uh, we tried to exploit them and expose them to the user so that the final result was better than the standard Android um, that uh, Google was uh, proposing. Another uh, another fun point on that is that uh, occasionally Google pushes the source code for something ahead of release, and we're able to kind of get at least some form of it out and working. Uh, I know Luca just actually found the um, the theme picker for Android Q oh, and yeah. uh, got that and the custom clocks up and running on Android Q before it yeah. launches what we assume the Pixel Four. So yeah, we probably we think they will be released along uh, the new Pixel 4, but uh, with some digging, I was able to extract these uh, new features from the Google code base. And yeah, it's funny to just look around and uh, explore new things that allows us to customize and uh, generally make our own device with our own operating system. So that's uh, more liberty to customization and uh, out of privacy because you know as exactly what you are running on your device something that doesn't happen with the, the um, version provided by the oems that they may have uh, i don't know unwanted features and some bloatware that usually always end up end up um, lowering the device yeah, and some people uh, even consider like the uh, Google Play Services apps to be uh, bloatware. Yeah, uh, I, if, I could, if I could shoot the uh, the tinfoil hat emoji up there, I think I would. But, uh... Yeah, well, um, I'm an heavy user of the Google application, so I can say. But of course, uh, many people uh, think that uh, the Google Google extensions are bloatware, and that's why there exists many frameworks like MicroG 
that allows to uh, avoid using the whole uh, uh, platform made by Google, but uh, replacing it with an, an open source implementation so that uh, users have more privacy and uh, that isn't co directly connected with uh, Google. So mm -hmm. that's uh, a nice thing, I think. We There are a few uh, security implications on that. That's why we officially don't support it yet. But uh, maybe some, some sooner or later we'll uh, find some way to include it. So wait, so so you're saying that the micro G is not officially supported by Lineage OS, or was that something yeah, else? So I was around for that whole conversation as well. So it um it basically boils down to in order to spoof the Google Play Services application and the Google frameworks, they need to be able to spoof the signature to seem as if it was a Google application. Uh -huh. uh, and they had initially a very, um, admittedly, they even admitted it back then, was an, an, an invasive function that did so. And um, after some talks with us back in uh, Lineage 15.1, they, uh, they proposed a patch set that was much less uh, intrusive, but still was based on a, an XML that would potentially allow anyone who places an XML in that directory to spoof a signature. Ah. And um, they didn't, I mean, we're still open to talking about it uh, as far as I know, but um, as it sits right now, that implementation isn't something that will be merging. Okay, okay. Um, there's something that interested me personally that definitely isn't going to make it into the episode, but you mentioned the, the theming options that are presumably going to be coming with the, the Pixel 4. Is is that more robust than the theming options that are currently in the developer settings in Android 10 that I have on my Pixel 3? Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Okay. There, there will, you will be able to create custom themes with custom fonts, uh, colors, uh, and icons. I think also the, color, the icon shape, uh, custom uh, grid uh, sizes, uh, and custom clocks on the lock screen. For example, there is, a, I think it's called the bubble. There is, a, it's a funny clock and nothing crazy, but it's a way for Google to create a few nice little things to put in Android that they may be funny for the user to play with. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So it, it's much more, I wouldn't say equivalent, it's much more comparable to what Cyanogen, uh, the Cyanogen theme engine yeah. was. Uh, okay. I, I looked at some of the features, it's not quite as robust as some of the things we were able to do, but it's much more comparable. Yeah. I yeah, they... I remember oh, downloading some really crazy Cyanogen themes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah. could, you can make that thing look truly awful if you wanted to. Oh, yeah, so many people was, uh, crazy back then. Nowadays, it's way more normal, I would say. It's uh, with Google changes allows to change way less because uh, of security implications again, mm -hmm. because uh, our old time engine was, uh, I think, pretty robust, but there were probably ways to break applications and everything. And Google, of course, by trying to make it an official uh, behavior, they have to enforce more security restrictions on what can be changed and what not. So that's why, as of now, it's a way uh, more subtle. It's a way uh, closer to the OSP look. But uh, we don't know if uh, in the future they allow more open ways to customize Android because uh, the framework itself is really powerful. 
it allows you to change basically everything. It's only up to Google what to allow to be released. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, with uh with Android Q especially, we even have uh, things like overlay FS and other functions that would uh, make potentially make RRO the theming engine behind. Um, it's not directly from Substratum, but if you'll remember back in the day, layers uh, just use direct RRO. Um, that could potentially be you know kind of compared. So. Uh, cool. Um, so what are the, what are the challenges with, uh, making and maintaining a third party ROM? If you want to go for that one, Luca. Oh, I can do that. So, well, the main, uh, uh, the hardest part is to have some, an OEM that allows us to customize our device. So first of all, we need an unlikable, uh, bootloader that allows us to flash unsecured the, uh, images because uh, of course we will try, we will hope in the future, there will be way easier way to install custom ROMs. But as of now, we need to uh, sadly uh, lose some security to install them. And that's why uh, the we, I personally, I unlock every device, but I wouldn't uh, unlock uh, my father's, my parents' devices because I care about their security. So that's the first point uh, is that, you know, you are going to lose some security over customization and uh, everything around that. Then it's uh, mainly just, a, a, I don't know, a game. It's a, I guess and pick what you need because uh, there Nowadays, these ones are crazy complex, and there are many, many little things that need to, to be put in place to get everything working. So it's a mix and match with what the OEM provides to you and what the Google itself, itself provides. And it ends up with a mix of what's already open source with what uh, isn't open source and it's uh, pr uh, proprietary. So the, the real job is to get uh, the perfect balance between them so that you can have uh, something usable and uh, something that actually works and is uh, can be used as a daily driver. That's our um, our mission, let's, get, let's say. We want something that the end user uh, wants to use because it's working, it's stable, and we want and our and we enforce that with a charter that has many different uh, points where we uh, list the most important uh, uh, must have and must must end points of the our uh, modifications to android so we have a quite strict uh, um, list of uh, uh, points to that our devices must conform to to be office official okay. that's why there are many unofficial uh, unofficial roms but uh, we of course we are always open to hear these third party developers to join us so we can help them and uh, make them official because there it's not really difficult but we are very strict with what it's allowed and isn't so, so um, to kind of jump on something he said real quick. Yeah, go for um, it. He was talking about uh, basically submission for officials. Um, my answer to the hardest part, um, or at least one of the, the 
most interesting parts for me is uh, developer relations. Uh, so incoming developers that want their device officially supported. Um, I do a lot of device tree kernel and proprietary Bob's review for incoming developers that are submitting unofficial ROMs. Okay. Um, and uh, that's a case of going through and kind of giving them uh, feedback at a very granular level uh, on what to do, how to get it in line with us and how to submit to us. Um, and uh, of course, when you have, you know, incoming new people and existing people, there's going to be disagreements about how things should happen. And um, one of the biggest things I run into is, you know, I, you know, we say, okay, we do it this way and they go, well, this works fine. And you go, well, that's not the standard we set. That's not what we, you know, expect, you know, expected behavior. Um, and additionally, another point that Luca hit, he hits on a loss of security when you unlock. Um, we don't officially support it because uh, obviously every OEM and every different device is going to be different. But on newer devices where Android Verified Boot is implemented correctly, you can actually relock. Again, I'm not advocating this at all. Don't do it. Big red flag. <laughs> but uh, if you know what you're doing, you can sign it with your own certs and um, relock it as if it was from an OEM. Okay. Um, and, uh, we actually add many of our – we require in Charter that to some extent the uh, kernels that are submitted are CVE patch to a reasonable extent. Uh, we don't have a hard limit on that. But um, we require at least that, you know, you're not running some esoteric kernel from 2014. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of the people who has um, compromised the the security of my parents' phone to, uh, you know, install. I think uh, my mom's got Lineage 14 running on her uh, Moto G3. Uh, hey, and awesome. Yeah. And so... Yeah, it uh, it it gives her a that big scary warning every time that she restarts the phone. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the the big red, red flag. But uh, you get used to it if you know what we are doing. Yeah, yeah. I think as as long as I you know told her ahead of time that like you're gonna see this every time that you start the phone, she knows what what to expect. Um, so uh, yeah, I'd like to ask you know because one of the one of the things that we talked about one of the advantages of having a third party rom like this is that like yeah we can we can keep them like the security patches more up to date um cuz you know obviously like what is that android 7 uh is lineage 14 you know so that's that's one year newer than the newest version that like motorola's put out um how, like how do we balance the desire for like you know security patches in the Android operating system versus the, you know, security vulnerabilities of unlocking the phone in the first place. So that's kind of an interesting one. So there's two kind of two prongs, two things to talk about there. The first is when you unlock the device, inherently there is some loss of security. You can boot unsigned images, you can boot custom kernels and things like that. And that that is a vulnerability. But with Android having migrated to, in almost all devices, either forced full disk encryption or for, uh, forced uh, file-based encryption, even if you have an unlocked bootloader, your user data is, unless the OEM did something really screwy, uh, <laughs> basically safe. So, you, you know, the custom kernel, for example, could provide someone an attack surface to try to brute force your FBE or FDE key easier, but it's still going to take them the theoretical, you know, what, I don't, um, on that form of encryption, it's like 60-something years, right? Or something ridiculous to crack? Yeah, it's, uh, yes, uh, to... 56 so oh, that's yeah. uh, quite a big number so yeah we are yeah. Uh, secure and is that so that attack surface is that something that somebody could exploit remotely or would they have to have physical access to the device 
uh, fast boot as of right now, um, there is code in the fast boot protocol for fast boot over Wi-Fi and fast boot over TCP, uh, but no public facing devices have it or have had it. Um, so as of right now, it's basically that bootloader interface is only accessible over uh, USB. Okay. But if someone was able to get root access to, say, the local system, uh, <coughs> with, yeah, if someone was able to get root access to the local system and was able to disable SE Linux, they could potentially just put something in place in the boot image. Um, there's not much to be done there beyond relocking, but again, not advocating that unless you know what you're doing. So, mm. so, so the the kind of TLDR on that is. I've made my mom's phone slightly less secure if somebody grabs it from her, but more secure for attacks that are, you know, remote. I don't, I haven't looked at Osprey specifically, but most likely, you know, it was charter compliant at one point. So yeah, most likely. Okay. Yeah, probably. That's the case. Um, yeah, you, you talked a little bit about stuff that like the OEMs have to do in order for lineage to be able to support them officially. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like, can we drill down into that a little bit? What determines, like, the list of devices with lineage support? There's a difference between what OEMs, like, okay, so I'll let Luca take the majority of this, but um, there's a difference between what an OEM can do to help us make our, you know, our lives easier and what determines official support. Okay. So, Luca, do you want to get official support? Or you, I guess pick which one you want to talk about. Oh, yeah, so for the official support... The UM must release the kernel. That's the most important part because it's under a GPL license. That means that they are enforced to release it, but sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't always happen, mm. and it may happen that it isn't the same that shipped on the device. So it's like a general view of what's inside, but you may not always have the the same thing released. And uh, that's mainly on the OEM part. Then there is the using the standard Android interfaces that uh, is uh, now enforced with Android uh, Oreo and later, thanks to Treble, Project Treble. It's uh, really, really helped us uh, to work on these devices because it forced the OEMs to use a uh, generic and standard uh, protocol to communicate with Android. So we are exploiting it very, very uh, day, daily because it's uh, really helpful. But over the, other than that, the UAM doesn't have to do any other thing. Uh, they can always help us with, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, seeding from devices and uh, providing us uh, some uh, more internal uh, access to, I don't know, maybe their... Uh, maybe directly talking to a developer, so to debug an issue. Uh, and uh, I don't know, that's uh, what happened to myself. And I think that's the best relationship that can happen with uh, these providers. So that's mainly it. Then, uh, don't know, do you want to add anything, Nolan? Yeah, so a great point um, on talking about device support as it uh, relates to kernel source. So um, not to call out specifically, this is just a, a great example. Um, the Honor View 10, uh, a lot of devices will see it out for that. And the L09, the international variant, the European variant, mm -hmm. had a kernel source drop for Pi. So uh, I know that Luke was able to get uh, Pi up and running on L09 perfectly. Uh, and currently on L04, the American variant, uh, which is the one that I happen to have, they never released Pi kernel source. So we're kind of dead in the water on that variant. 
And we actually just had to set it up so that we only support the international variants and we can't support uh, the U.S. variant because it doesn't have the correct kernel source. And reverse engineering that level, reverse engineering at that level is something that is a full time day job for the people that are good at it. Um, and so, you know, you're not going to find someone that's willing to just sit down and reverse a kernel to the point where it's usable. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pain. Reverse uh, engineering, it's really important in our job because uh, it allows us to understand many things that are under the hood. But uh, doing it, it's really hard, especially on lower uh, parts of the devices, like the kernel, because it's really a mess down there. So, yeah, and, uh, um, so like it, it sounds like yeah since you, the the organization is structured such that like kind of individual contributors are maintaining you know a particular like device is that why we sometimes see devices like the Nvidia Shield tablet um, that used to be supported and is no longer or was that a separate thing? That's that's actually half me. Um, so <laughs> so uh, let me a quick. To, to the people, I didn't. I know the announcement only made it out in the uh, Hudson commit to pull the device. In essence, NVIDIA released a uh, the, the last version of their graphics driver that they released uh, for the K1 chipset mm-hmm. had a bug where um, in NuGet, uh, and this is kind of super complex. Uh, there's something called uh, OpenGL and GLES fencing, which is basically uh, how pixels are put to the display and how graphics are rendered. Um, from NuGet to Oreo, that changed significantly with something called Hardware, Hardware Composer 2. Um, and uh, with Hardware Composer 2 being forced in Oreo, uh, or I guess it's forced as a P, my bad, forced as a pie. Um, with it being forced, the issue we ran into was that um, within about 10 minutes of use, uh, if you use it heavily, um, the uh, system UI will crash because there's a memory leak that is just perpetually... Uh, perpetually filling up all the available space you have. And we didn't notice that in testing because we weren't running things like Borderlands 2 or uh, any real heavy games in our testing. Uh, but some users started running some of the NVIDIA games and immediately noticed that it just wasn't usable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we felt it was best to just leave it where it was on 15.1 using Hardware Composer 1. Okay. Some now, yeah. there, there, there are talks with NVIDIA to get a binary release that'll fix that, but that's up in the air. That's maybe so right um yeah i think when when i saw that it wasn't on the list anymore i was like i wonder if that's because like it's on the wrong side of the treble divide or something like that um, um no so um in terms of bring up with treble there's a lot of confusion there treble made the core bring up job easier mm-hmm. so like say you got a device in your hand and you have kernel source and nothing else i would say that bringing a treble device up is considerably easier than it was, and Luca may have a different sentiment, but it considerably easier than it was back in the day if you just got a legacy device and had to bring it up. Because everything, at least now, has some level of standardization we can look at. Now, going from version to version, say you have a treble device that's on 8.0 mm-hmm. and you want to bring it up to 9.0, that may prove to be tougher than bringing up a legacy device. So in my opinion, treble makes it way easier to do the initial bring up, but then potentially could be harder in later versions. We don't it depends how much Google changes the VNDK per version. Huh. Yeah, Google is uh, trying to their best to keep the support for older Android versions, but uh, some, t- some things and sometimes they just break things because they maybe don't have enough hardware available to be tested 
or just uh, for a simple mistake. So, yeah, for example, my devices went perfectly from uh, 9.0 to 10.0 without any issue. But uh, for example, with the Shield tablet, it happened to be really hard to jump to another version because of this uh, issue with the rendering. So that's why we pulled it, but uh, other times sim simply the device maintainer isn't able to maintain the device anymore. So for, yeah, so it happens to be just removed from our builds because they're, they don't have enough free time to work on the device because uh, that's a, a non-profit uh, work hobby. So it's, uh, it all depends on the free time we can uh, dedicate to this uh, little job. And that's why a few devices uh, get uh, dropped. But uh, it's, I think it's a minority because uh, our user base is uh, really, really trying to uh, do their best to maintain the devices and keep them up to date. So it, it happens because uh, everyone can, uh, from a day to another, have uh, not uh, enough free time to dedicate to this thing. But uh, as far as I can see from a director point of view, it's uh, really, really uh, heartfelt to try to keep going and working of these devices. Um, yeah, and so to punch off one thing, so for example, <laughs> I have a, um, can't disclose the name of the device, but I have a device that's a VNDK26, which is a 8.0. Uh, shipped with 8.0, which was the very first revision where you could have treble. Yeah. Uh, and the OEM did implement treble compliant to that standard. Uh, but for example, that device has proven much more of a pain to bring up than, say, the OnePlus One or uh, the Galaxy Note 3. Um, those were from 8.0 to 9.0. Those devices were much easier to bring up uh, than this specific Oreo treble device was. Um, and that's just because Google has accidentally, it's hard for them to manage. Really. I'm not get, throwing any shade at them, but, um, you know, obviously when you have a standard interface like that, every now and then something slips through the cracks and, uh, VNDK 26, the first one, especially is a little, uh, a little harder to work with. Okay. I, I, so trouble with mixed bags, what I'm trying to say. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'm willing to throw shade because, like, that was the whole point of trouble, right? Was to make bring up easier to, to standardize. Uh, uh, it's uh, the initial uh, bring up is way easier, but if you keep uh, trying to use the same base with a newer Android version, it starts to get tricky. Okay. So, yeah. As, yeah, so as we said in our blog post, trouble, trouble. <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's it helps a lot, but it can also cause uh, some troubles with uh, develop development. Yeah, so the I guess when you're talking about trouble, there's two, there's kind of two things. And this is another thing people don't really understand publicly facing. There's uh, the vendor image, which is all of the Qualcomm and device specific proprietary binaries where mm -hmm. trouble is contained. And um, can we think yeah, of those as the drivers? Yeah, I guess you could kind of say it like that. Um, it's it's that plus all of the configurations needed to get the device basically booting Android. Um, and where things kind of get fun is some maintainers, like the Pixel maintainers, for example, are very fond of using pre-built images. Uh, you know, the, the vendor provided OEM or the OEM provided vendor images. And other maintainers are building those vendor images from source uh, from Qualcomm CAF. Um and uh, it really depends. So, like, 
if you're building your vendor source, you may have better luck on a bring up. If you're using a pre-built, you might. It, it, it's really a mixed bag depending on the device. Yeah, I personally uh, started using uh, vendor images from the UM with the treble, but uh, yeah, it's uh, sometimes it's way easier to just uh, do everything from scratch because the OEM may have uh, added some interfaces that uh, simply don't work or there are crazy stuff around. So you may just say, fuck it and try to redo everything from the scratch. Yeah, I'm it's, looking uh, it's uh, like that. So yeah, <laughs> uh, my, my personal example of that is a Motorola's audio uh, hardware interface layer. It's a god awful nightmare to work with, and it's not their fault. Not completely. Uh, they have to do Moto mod support for the uh. speakers and things like that, and uh, it makes audio on those devices a true and genuine nightmare to work with. Um, so uh, we we build everything we can from source, but the audio interfaces, a lot of the stuff, it's it's more pre built than I'd like it to be. Yeah. Um, so since, since it seems like, it seems like a, such a toss up on like which devices are going to be able to be supported long term, you know, like, um, you know, the, the NVIDIA shield tablet, which like, you know, by, by all appearances when it came out was like, oh yeah, they, they've hardly, they haven't put like a skin on it. And, you know, NVIDIA themselves are the hardware manufacturer. So they're providing all of the, the drivers and everything, um, but then you know yeah that one's that one's no longer on the list but like the i don't know HTC 1 M8 right is is still <laughs> yeah. is still on the lineage list well, you know, um yeah is it like is there what what things should a, a consumer be looking for if they want to have a device that that is going to be supported for the longest term possible a few check boxes there the OEM should be developer friendly. Um, I'm talking OnePlus. I'm and then in terms of like kernel source release, you know, getting a full source release is definitely helpful. Um, but um, I guess I don't want to call out names specifically, but getting an OEM that is known for having good uh, developer relations and uh, good developer support. Um, secondarily, Treble. Um, it's always good um, because you know, in essence, if if you if it ends up causing more trouble than you want, you can actually just disable it. Um, I've seen a few devices that had so much trouble with early versions of Treble that they actually just decided to disable it. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of my sentiment. Yeah, we can say uh, uh, some uh, vendor that is good to work on because there are many factors and uh, we simply can't uh, guess what is going to happen uh, to Android in the next year. So I'm sure, uh, for example, OnePlus, is uh, always doing a great job, but uh, and we think they keep doing it, but uh, maybe next year they change something. And that's uh, hard to say if uh, we can uh, still support the same device. Well, so it's really, it's really, mm, we can't uh, just uh, decide to support a device for uh, uh, that dot number of years because we can't simply know what's going to happen. So we try, of course, we try to uh, maintain them as long as we can. For example, the OnePlus One is, uh, I think, uh, the incredible back on uh, devices, uh, probably along the ATG M8, the longest uh, surviving device uh, we have. And it's great to see the, them uh, going strong, but uh, that's uh, everything I can say, not uh, 
not to what to get but uh, to try to see the trend that is going on with the current devices and pick one that fits your needs because one day you may be able to install lineage when your provider doesn't support it anymore yeah um so uh talking about specifically you mentioned the m8 and the shield tablet we already kind of touched on the shield tablet and why that was but here's the cool part about the shield tablet um son this is not an eta this is definitely not it's going to happen but we contacted nvidia about that issue um and uh, nvidia being very developer friendly uh, very forward with us about everything um actually assigned us um I don't believe we're allowed to say the name, but they assigned us an engineer to help us uh, start to resolve some of the problem. And uh, he's being paid to do that, which is oh, wow. cool. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. I know we're, we're, he told us we're allowed to say that, but I don't, I don't know how much more I'm allowed to say. But uh, we're also working on getting a new uh, binary release for that specific driver, uh, which if we can get that would mean potentially, you know, I mean, I've already got 17.0 Q uh, booting on the Shield tablet with just about the same issues, you know, that you'd expect <clears throat> with the GL issue. But uh, if we get that binary release, it's back on the roster. You know, it's it kind of just, does the OEM care? Can we fix it? It's very much dependent on the device. Yeah. Uh, recently, I started working with uh, Asus. And uh, I, I worked with them before for the Zenfone uh, 2 laser. And uh, back then, they weren't really developer friendly. They simply gave us the kernel, and we had to ask for the kernel because it wasn't automatic, but uh, it worked. Now there is a, a, a developer, a PR that works with us directly, provides us uh, for some information, and uh, we, we may be able to, I think, uh, from tomorrow, it should be, I can say, uh, internal access to the QBetas, so that we can uh, work better on uh, our device Android versions. And uh, there are recently many manufacturers that started uh, these programs to help us developers. And I think if uh, they keep doing that, it's uh, a really good trend because they're, they're, it's very likely that these devices are going to be maintained very longer. So one more thing to add, you mentioned the HTC M8. Uh, Bruno, one of our very core contributors um, and one of our platform reviewers is the guy that basically is the, the heart and soul of the M8 nowadays. And the funny part is on 14.1, that device was fully supported, but you'll notice it skipped 15.1 and then went straight to 16. Hmm. Um, and the funny part here about that is that that was a case of a single bug that lasted for about two years running. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. It wasn't even a bug that we didn't know how to solve. It was a uh, very interesting. It was just the build system did not pick up a specific header for his camera, uh, his camera parameters library. And we could not for the life of us. I dug into it. I know uh, Rashid, one of our other directors, dug into it. We could not figure out why the hell this camera header was not getting included. And if you hand included it in the framework, it's a real hacky, not okay method. It worked fine. Um, and that single bug held that device up for two years until Bruno yeah. sat down and just said, I'm going to work around this another way, like, you know. Yeah, we ended up uh, fixing it, it uh, completely in another way because uh, we really, really hate hacking the platform, the core stuff. So we always encourage to have uh, these hacks because they are very, really bad hacks so most of the times to be device specific and to not touch the core platform because uh, you never know if you are going to break another device. 
So we try to keep uh, it as clean as possible to mm -hmm. match the Google layout because uh, it's really important to be able to have a base that is known to work everywhere. And if you if we start introducing many many custom uh, parameters for every device, I don't know, the things may start to get a bit uh, crazy, and we don't want that. And uh, after two years, we finally had fixed this issue with a really nice hack that isn't uh, messing too much, let's say. Yeah, and so uh, two other quick notes. Uh, you know, in terms of developer support, look at Huawei. I mean, this last year we had Luke and Luca, both were doing great work on Huawei devices. And then thanks to one corporate decision to stop allowing unlockable bootloaders, we now can't work on them. Mm. Like, it's pretty much that simple. So, you know, it, it's really, uh, you know, people bought those devices because at the time they're fully supported. And the problem being that we just can't guarantee that everything's going to stay the same, you know? So does, yeah, so, does that uh, affect... Um, if they decided not to release any new products that have unlockable bootloaders, does that affect people who bought previous devices that did have unlockable bootloaders? For us, for sorry, for a way it did because they stopped the providing a lock method for even the older devices. We had a grace period, I think, for a month or something to ask directly for a lock to the PR guy that worked with us. So we were able to get the lock codes, but after that they locked everything down and we were left uh, in the field uh, with uh, a few unlocked devices that we try to keep uh, working on because they are good devices. They indeed are. I feel my mother is, is using it right now and uh, they work. They are great devices. But sadly, a decision from the headquarters uh, locked the, made them force lock the bootloaders, and it, it uh, killed every every sorry uh, every possible way to install a custom ROM, and that's bad because uh, uh, some people really really look forward to install them because it gives them uh, real reliability, uh, privacy, and security. But sometimes the uh, organization and the providers don't understand this thing. And uh, usually for start uh, doing crazy stuff to block them because they think that they will hurt the user base because they usually don't know what they end up doing. I think this was the away excuse they said. They prefer to have working devices other than allowing a few users, let's say, I don't even think 1% of their use base ever unlock the bootloader. But they say they prefer something that for is sure to work for them that allow these few people to work with their own projects on them. It's a really hard decision to do it. I, I can play them. It's, uh, it's normal. But yeah. uh, it kills our job. I don't. Yeah. I don't understand the reasoning behind it because, like, you know, people like desktop computers. Everybody owns desktop computers that are unlocked. You know, I can install what I can wipe my operating system and install whatever I want on there, and that that hasn't hurt desktop and laptop sales. So the the gist there is that there is a lot. Um, to think about when you're thinking about how OEMs make money on phones, especially mid-range phones, 
Um, mm. Most of their money often, at least for Huawei, especially and for Xiaomi, is not made from the purchase of the device. A lot of their money is made from the ad revenue and the licensed services that come pre-shipped on the device. So if the user gets the device and flashes lineage, per se, that has zero licensed services, uh, the company is losing out on a user that otherwise could have made them, you know, the money that would have made the phone profitable for them. Uh, whereas on desktops, the bloatware usually isn't introducing ads or anything like that. Um, and then the laptop vendors make their money from the hardware. Mm. Yeah, I remember I remember looking at some of those um, Motorola phones that were like Amazon branded uh, with like $100, you know, knocked off of it. And I was like, well, if I can get those and just like install lineage on them, then like, I don't. Yeah, but uh, of course, they don't let you do that. Yeah, it makes sense for them because uh, it's their only way to make some revenue from such uh, low-end devices. But uh, yeah, it's uh, kind of sad for us because we can't work on them. Another issue with Huawei, I know a specific one when I was talking to uh, our PR agent, um, was that uh, Huawei devices are pretty often uh, sold by resellers over in the uh, Asian area. And that those resellers had a bad habit of pre-unlocking the devices and installing a ton of their own junk on them. Um, so I know that, that was part of Huawei's worry was that people were getting a Huawei device and saying, this thing sucks. And they're saying, well, you're not running our official software because your reseller tainted it. Um, and I don't know why that's not a huge problem here, but I do know that that was a big problem for them. Yeah, it was also a big problem for Xiaomi mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning. Now they are uh, way... Uh, less substitute to do these issues because they have, I think now it's a three weeks delay for unlocking the bootloader, some crazy stuff. Which and, makes it, you know, hard to, yeah, hard to So that uh, discourages the resellers to install and unlock these bootloaders to make revenue from them. And uh, I think it's a, a good way to avoid these issues, but uh, it's not the solution, of course. That's really funny because I, I have kind of you know thought about in my head like oh man could i just like start like a small business that just like takes old used possibly refurbished phones and like flash lineage onto them to have like you know newer better features and like you know be totally upfront with people that like this is what i'm doing i'm giving you a, a newer version of android on this phone than it, otherwise it would be able to have but i know that would never work because people don't care yeah, <laughs> and the ones and the ones that do can do it themselves. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm I'm saving them what like you know two hours of labor. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah. Spe- speaking of uh, that brings me to the bullet points that I had for you know like how how does uh keeping keeping the version of Android updated you know like what concrete things does it do to um keep the device going um and you know one of those things i would argue is that having new features in your operating system is something that is desirable i feel like though that's probably not as big an issue as i personally think it is because like you know a lot of the people who i talk to can't like they don't even know what what the new features are that you know come from the operating system versus just like having newer hardware mm-hmm. um and I feel like, yeah, the the three of us are definitely uh, too deep into this to re- <laughs> uh, to be of that mindset. Um, but yeah, of course, there there are security vulnerabilities. We touched on those. Um, 
Are there any like big highlights in the security vulnerability area that you guys can think of off the top of your heads? I work for a security firm as my day job, uh, and I do mobile device and integrated device security. Um, so that's something I'm really conscious of on my lineage devices. Um, so for example, we just brought up the Galaxy S4 and just shipped that, um, which is a 2013, late 2013 phone, uh, shipped that with Pi. Um, and one of my big things, a uh, few of our guys wanted to ship it a lot earlier. My big thing was the kernel was severely outdated and it still isn't the best. Hey, uh, hey Nolan. Could you, um, basically, hey, hey Nolan, could, yep. could you not click the pen? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, that happened. But uh, so basically uh, we held up shipping it because initially we had a the kernel rebased from the initial Samsung source that was three dot, uh, Linux kernel was like 3.4. I want to say like 50. Um, and uh, I, uh, we went through and merged all of the available Linux upstream and all of the available uh, Qualcomm CAF tags to bring it up as new to date as possible. Um, which still isn't great, but it's a lot better off than it was. Yeah, are things like like I I can think of a few few high profile things like uh, WannaCry, I believe was um, wait is that the one I'm thinking of the one that was like uh, h- kind of hardware specific. Um, oh, uh, Scepter and Meltdown. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and those were patched in an Android update, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. Is- that- that's well, gonna be firmware stuff usually, but go ahead, Luca. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, usually it's this is really tied to the hardware. So uh, either the OEM itself provides a workaround in the kernel to make it work the intended way, but usually this is a really high performance deficit, and this is why we've seen only the Pixel, I think, one and two, to have them fixed. Mm. But uh, later on, we saw uh, hardware fixes that uh, made the um, Spectre and Meltdown uh, patches obsolete so that we were able to use a device without a, a major performance hit with the security patches. This is really uh, the most uh, highlighted ones are usually tied to the hardware itself nowadays. But for example, in I think it was 2014, there there was a co that uh, was a really really bad uh, per, uh, issue because it allowed uh, every processor to write uh, to uh, every file everywhere hmm. without any permission, and this this was just uh, a bug in the kernel. So everyone in our team started patching it like uh, within days. Our uh, kernels were all patched and so the next day uh, next nightly we were completely <coughs> uh, free from this bug that was really really an important thing back then nowadays there aren't uh, i think i i haven't heard of uh, as many as bad uh, issues as uh, co uh, back in the day but uh, we try to always uh, pull the fixes from, uh, for example, uh, Linux itself and uh, Qualcomm if uh, our device is uh, based on this platform. So yeah, that's uh, what uh, we do. We try to do at our best. We try to um, fix what the provider, the OEM doesn't do anymore or does, but not in the most important way. For 
example, Jesus isn't always uh, pulling every every fix that I know should be added to the card, for example. And uh, I go there, check every change, and pick what's needed to, from uh, Qualcomm itself. <coughs> so, yeah, that's it. Um, how have the, and this, okay, so this question definitely comes from, you know, my just experience being a Windows user over the years. Um, have like the system requirements for Android changed over time? Because like, you know, I've, I've, I've seen older, you know, Windows devices get slower when, you know, you update them from XP to Vista or whatever. Um, but like, you know, that Microsoft has kind of stabilized those system requirements since Windows 7 um is there is there an equivalent in the Android space um so I work on legacy a lot so I've worked on uh, currently we have as old as a MSM 8960 which is the uh Snapdragon 600 brought up to um Android Pie and I can say notably that 8960 really does take a performance hit when you take it from its latest shipped version of like Lollipop or like earlier than that KitKat which seems blazing fast on the phone. Uh, if you take it up to Pi, you do take a bit of a performance hit. Um, it's mostly noticeable in the animations. So uh, in KitKat, animations were very abrupt and very kind of not smooth. It wasn't really a UX-focused OS um, or UI-focused. And then you bring it up to Pi, which has all these material color palettes and all of these beautiful, you know, swifty animations. And the GPU just wasn't made for that. Um, so it it's going to miss frames. Um, it's not going to play your, you know, PUBG. Um, so it does, I'd say it does take a notable hit, but um, it's nothing that's unusable. Yeah, definitely. I usually work on uh, IRN devices, but uh, <clears throat> I still have my old devices in the drawer. And every day, every time I update them. And it's a really, a, it's a big jump from the animations and the fluidity of the OS itself. But the device is uh, usable. It's uh, nothing crazy. So I think the the low end is uh, I think uh, Snapdragon uh, uh, eight hundred. That's uh, the initial uh, for top high end device from Qualcomm. Is uh, I think it's it's still good nowadays. It's uh, really used, for example, by the uh, uh, HTC M eight and OnePlus One. It's still uh, working perfectly nowadays, so there isn't much of an it. <laughs> Good, awesome, um, and yeah, and I've read about a few other things um, that they've done over the years. Like uh, in Android Ten, I know that they introduced a new uh, encryption scheme um, that isn't like in, it, instead of relying on having a particular category of a system on a chip. Uh, they came up with like some clever way to to allow like you know older six hundred you know Qualcomm six hundred uh, series yeah. um, processors. I think uh, you're talking that. about uh, uh, adamantium. That is uh, yes, <laughs> that sounds right. A new uh, cipher to encrypt data for low end devices. Yeah, that doesn't exploit any hardware specific uh, future, but is uh, really really performs uh, optimized and uh, <laughs> can run even on low-end devices. I don't think any of our devices super it because it requires a new uh, kernel. And uh, ah. so 
our legacy devices are have, are too old to support these new features and that's why we have an overlay it's like a property that the device has legacy encryption that means the even if the device doesn't have support for hardware encryption any kind of uh, encryption is enough to provide uh, some bit of security uh, while on uh, newer devices that's basically every device after uh, with a 64 bit cpu they are enforced to provide uh, uh, hardware encryption that uh, really really improves the security and uh, it's uh, mandatory by our charter rules awesome um so we talked yeah we talked quite a bit about trouble um there was also uh mainline uh is is a new project that uh kind of sounds in 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 a similar vein um and of course i i only know about it from reading like the twenty thousand word uh ars technica android 10 review uh so (laughs) when i was reading about it it sounded like it was either going to be like the best thing in the world because you know we can now uh provide monthly like um security patches to third-party devices without the OEMs having to do anything, uh, or it's going to be the worst thing in the world for <laughs> like for third-party ROMs like Lineage uh, because, like, I don't know, are they providing, like, an open-source version of these security patches, or yeah, is it I all... Asked, uh, about that uh, to Google directly because I wanted to be sure to have everything working as uh, for us third-party developers, so they, they say to me they were going to release every single uh, change to these uh, mainline projects. And if they keep this word, it's going to be good for us so we can keep track of these changes. But uh, the real um, mainline by itself is really a good project because uh, it really uh, removed some uh, key features from to be updated from the provider itself and moved them to the Google. That's really good because it really reduces the amount of waiting for new security patches to be fixed. And for our side, as far as I can tell, it doesn't affect anything. Maybe, maybe in the future, we'll, I don't know if we are going to, but we may be able to even provide the packages provided by Google themselves. So that uh, our devices can update from uh, the Google Play Store, for example, directly, instead of waiting for a new our build with these uh, new changes uh, in uh, our platform instead of uh, coming from Google. It will be a nice thing to have, but uh, we haven't decided, and uh, probably it's going not going to happen. But it could be cool. So just like um, and the way I view that, it took us a while to get support for A B seamless devices running um longer than it should have because i i take part of the blame for that because i dragged my feet on some of the work for nash but um uh it took us just as it took us a while to get that support rolling i feel like it'll be the same sort of we're going to be lagging behind a few months and figuring out how it works figuring out how we can apply it and how we can work with it <coughs> with apex specifically and talking about um project mainline with the way it works reliant on Google Play, I don't know if we'll ever actually use it. Um, maybe at some point in the near future, uh, but it would it would take a lot of logistics planning that we currently don't have set up. Yeah, it's uh, 
we haven't planned everything and even uh, uh, new devices upgraded to Android 10, most of them, I don't even think have the support for Project Mainline. Mm-hmm. I think as of now, only the Pixel 3 and the Pixel 3a have support for it. Nice. So just uh, four devices uh, in the world. But uh, for example, my own builds for the Zenfone 6 support it. And many other custom uh, devices supported by Lineage started to move to Project Mainline. While, of course, the uh, the OEM are going to because it's uh, probably a useless effort on their side because uh, it's a dead device by the, by now. So they try, of course, their their point is to get the new, the best out and get rid of the old and. Uh, trying to provide always more and more support for these old devices sometimes is, uh, isn't good for the marketing. And uh, that's why <clears throat> we try to do what our the, what the UMs don't usually do, because we know it's, it's uh, usually better for the end user and for our own fun, because uh, playing, for example, with Project Mainline was fun because uh, I started working on it when I first uh, first saw it uh, in the Google AUSP project. I think it was early January or some crazy date like that. And uh, I started writing notes uh, what uh, I was going to need to make it work. And in the end, it was uh, like a hunt, uh, hunt for to get things working. But uh, it was worth it. It's uh, always something good to have. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I think that's all of the major points that I wanted to touch on. Um, does anybody have anything else uh, that they really, really wanted to talk about uh, before we sign off? Yeah, I, I guess I have one quick thing. Um, and XDA kind of did a whole expose. I worked with Michelle um, from XDA on this one. Um, people have like, the kind of sentiment that AB devices, the newer seamless devices, aren't as developer friendly. Hmm. Um, and uh, most of us at Lineage disagree with that pretty fervently um, because for us, they're easier to work on in terms of regression testing. Uh, and additionally, um, they're just honestly much, I, in my opinion, nicer. You, know, you can run an update server that serves it out. You test your update, and if it doesn't work, instead of having to go back and restore some backup you made or hoping you'd made a backup, you can just literally run one command to swap back to your working system. Um, so it, it makes testing, you know, A-B a- testing comically simpler. Um, but then uh, additionally, um, it really negates the need for the user to ever be in recovery, which is something that users have a real hard time understanding because they're so ingrained over all these years. When I get a phone, I flash a custom recovery and then I flash the wrong. No, uh, you know, with AV devices, you know, you temporarily boot a custom recovery a single time. And then technically speaking, you should never have to be in recovery again. Um, so, you know, it, it's kind of a paradigm shift that a lot of legacy users, people who, you know, flash ROMs, you know, for six years don't really understand and, you know, end up messing up pretty frequently. Uh, yeah. I love AV because uh, it's a, uh... It's great. It kills uh, every custom recovery out there, and I just I can do everything from a user space, and I love that it's uh, really really helpful for development. 
And uh, I, uh, on top of that, in Q, Google added the support for that is called DSU, Dynamic System Updates, that uh, if uh, it go, it's uh, going to work like we expect it to go, uh, it will allow us to basically, uh, with any device that shipped with Q, to install without uh, unlocking the bootloader any custom ROM temporarily. And uh, it's going to be, I think, crazy if it's going to work. But uh, we hope Google doesn't uh, break uh, it in the middle uh, of the of their work because as of, as of now, it's really, really looking uh, good for us to work on devices. Yeah, so the, the really cool thing, about that, I used to work on a project back in the day. I ported it for several devices called Multi-ROM. Um, and multi-ROM was a, uh, boot menu solution, very similar to like, a you know, a boot menu for a desktop machine where you'd have like a triple boot setup. Mm-hmm. You could run any number of ROMs with virtual user data partitions so that you could test the ROM, see if you wanted it. And then if you wanted to copy it or install it to your internal, um, and it's kind of a non-committal way of trying different operating systems. And with DSU, again, if they do it right, which I am praying they do. It would mean that you'd be able to enroll, like, say, Lineage's key in your pixel, and then you'd be able to boot a Lineage generic system image. Or uh, technically speaking, more than just that, you could, if, it, if it's implemented the right way, you'd be able just to boot a Lineage ROM for your device and have a virtual partition so that, like, you know, the way Google would do that is it's not a security issue for us because it's, it's almost as if it's a VM. It's, it's, not, it's not taking the performance that a VM is, but from a security standpoint, it's similarly segmented. So Google cares less about, oh, yeah, they can have fun in that little container because they can't do anything outside of it. Yeah, I'm, so, yeah, um, I'm glad that you guys brought that up because I was I was about to mention it. <laughs> yeah, you, and uh, I think uh, that some OEMs also want this uh, future to be used to test updates. Like they want to the, the users to install the, temp, the update in this uh, DSU, so temporarily. And uh, after a reboot, if they want to keep it, uh, they just press a button and it switches over. It's uh, a bit crazy, but I think Google is uh, working on that. But uh, we have no promises on what's going to happen there. Okay, so yeah. it's all uh, working in progress. So, it, so it didn't ship with Android ten dot zero. Yeah, we we have to see how it's going to work there. Okay. It works there for the Pixel three because it's uh, it got the logical partitions, it's a bit crazy setup that uh, Google introduces in queue that we haven't played with yet, but uh, probably it's going to help us uh, a bit in uh, during development. Yeah, I uh, I just, uh, so we also with Q have more partitions to deal with like ODM and the product <laughs> partition, which kind of separate further, you know, okay, there's drivers from Qualcomm and vendor, there's, you know, apps from your carrier and OEM, there's apps from your device manufacturer and ODM, things like that. Um, it, it further segments things and makes it fun to work with. So I actually just repartitioned my uh, Moto Z2 Force to have a product partition so that I can get in all the, on all the fun with people. So yeah, we sometimes we go crazy and repartition every device uh, to have the, these new crazy small partitions to fit the new things in, just for fun because uh, yeah, it's our hobby. Just uh, yeah, play play some EDM music and we can have <laughs> so we can have a partition party and. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so last uh, last question for the two of you. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? I'll let Luca go first on that one. Oh, sorry. 
Where can, pe- where can people find you on the internet if you want to be found on the internet? Oh, well, uh, I think uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, Luca uh, 2 or I don't think so, but uh, by email if they want to. If you want to put uh, that out there, you can. <laughs> okay. Same, same nick at Um Yeah, for me, uh, we've got uh, the two halves. We've got... Um, my Twitter is Nolan Johnson. It's N-O-L-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. Um, and uh, that's where I do most of my tech stuff. And then um, I've got my corporate email, which if you have any like inquiries, I have both uh, NJAR, uh, Nolan Johnson at lineageos.org. And then I've got uh, Nolan Johnson at directdefense.com for the day job. Very cool. So, oh, yeah. I don't have a day job, so I have no work workmate. So, yeah. That's the, that's the dream right there. Yeah. <laughs> um awesome and then um yeah i so for for our website we also we have like a people page for everybody who uh comes on so if you guys want to have uh you know a bio for yourself that's different than what you you know introduced yourself as at the beginning of this um then yeah you can you can email that to me and i'll stick it in there um otherwise i'll just i'll just paraphrase what you said sure yep cool it's uh, been a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah, same, to, same for me. And I, uh, I'm glad that I learned a lot here. <laughs> oh, also, this is the first time I, I'm on camera, I think. So it's uh, kind of big for me. Yeah. Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm only recording audio because this is an audio podcast. I know, I know, but it's still weird for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Okay. Have a good one, guys. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye. So I'm starting the recording. Um, and let's see, where did I put my questions? Here we go. Yes. Okay. Um, so can you, are, are you all ready and everything? I think so. Good. Awesome. Let me get, let me clear my throat real quick. <coughs> take a glass, take a drink of one. Okay. I don't know how I could get more ready than I am. So let's go. Sweet. Uh, Okay, can you introduce yourself and what your role is on the Rebel Alliance? Sure. Um, So I go by iShotJR. The title I typically use for Rebel stuff is Lead Emoji Sprinkler, um, (laughs) because a lot of what I do is just uh, jumping in and out of different projects and uh, indicating my excitement with uh, rocket and heart emojis and things like that. Um, So I do... um, some of the blog posts, not all of the blog posts anymore, because Josh and Catherine have been doing some of those. But originally, I did all the blog posts, um, all the social media stuff. Um, I do a lot of customer service at the moment. Um, we have sometimes uh, payment issues, like people need to update their credit card or are confused about what's happening with their subscription. So I end up doing a lot of that, um, as well as pretty much all of the business kind of stuff, um, you know, creating the LLC and uh, dealing with the finances and things like that. Um, that's all the kind of less exciting stuff that I just do because there's no one else to do it. But um, the stuff I'm more excited about is I'm working on some replacement hardware product projects. Um, I um, liaise with Fitbit and other partners to try and get things done that we need done, like the recent iOS um, app that they were so kind to help us restore to the App Store. Okay, so that and, is back. Yeah, go ahead. That, that, so that is back in the App Store now. Yeah, no, yeah. We uh, 
we we worked with Fitbit. I mean, I say we worked with Fitbit, which just meant every week I said, is it fixed yet? Is it fixed yet? Is it fixed yet? <laughs> um, it was kind of a complicated process because it had basically, um, you know, there's an annual dues that um, are required and Fitbit uh, hadn't gotten the notification um, because it had gone to somebody at pebble.com, which was no longer pointed anywhere. And so they had to get back into the account. Um, I believe they had to get around some two-factor authentication as well to be able to do that. And uh, then obviously pay the 99 bucks or whatever. But And there was also any time with Fitbit, there's sort of, you have to go through legal and things like that to make sure they're cool with it. Um, but all those hurdles were eventually cleared and it's back. Nice. It's good, it's good to know that uh, even corporations sometimes have to deal with like, oh man, I don't have that email address anymore. Oh man, I forgot my two-factor authentication like yeah. details. Yeah, that, it was exactly that was the problem. Um, so yeah, liaising with it there, um, on things like that. Um, other kind of partners or um, friends um, that, uh, for example, we acquired um, Dialer for Pebble or as it's now called Dialer for Rebel, which is uh, one of the workarounds on Android. We've taken that over since the original developer wasn't... Um, kind of interested in supporting it, although they have since um, become reinterested and contributed some new fixes to it. Um, and I'm kind of working on something I call the Rebel Suite, which is like a starter pack of the best apps and all the workarounds that are required to get everything um, working like it used to. Um, I'll also perhaps be taking over on the server ops a little bit um, because Josh is going on vacation, although I found out today that hopefully Catherine's going to take the lead on that, so I shouldn't have to get too involved um but yeah i mostly kind of aggregate um project statuses and turn them into blog posts and um keep people excited um try and inject a little bit of organization when possible and get my hands dirty when needed um which is quite similar to what i do during the day as a cto of a startup nice so it sounds like primarily there are three people who are like full like okay not full-time but like you know mainly yeah. involved in, in rebel yeah i wish i wish any of us were full-time <laughs> um everyone is volunteers except actually uh josh is now kind of not on the payroll literally but um we've actually started using some of our uh funds to be able to um accelerate some of the things like you may have seen the app store submission is now a thing mm -hmm. um and that was possible um because we're basically paying him to be able to spend more time on it than he would otherwise. Uh, similar for the timeline, we had a, um, that was a user contribution, but we still had to have someone um, code review and deploy it and stuff. So um, we've actually kind of retained Josh um, as uh, someone to, to push forward some of those initiatives. Um, but yes, um, Catherine is obviously a huge part of Rebel. Um, she's not super involved um, at the moment, but we kind of tap her when we need to, and obviously she is almost single-handedly responsible for RWS, which is the most important thing we've ever done, and just an amazing accomplishment. So she's forever um, our sparkly code princess uh, for contributing that, obviously. And um, yeah, I mean, we might be the three most recognizable names because of the blog posts and things like that and media coverage, but there's, um, I wouldn't even like to try to list all the other people because there's you know at least a dozen plus other people who are involved in firmware development app store development um something which probably never gets mentioned so i'm going to mention it is uh sort of 
not exactly customer service, but um, support. Um, I Like I said, I handle anything to do with payments, um, and Josh helps on that too, but um, there's lots of people just, you know, how do I switch to Rebel? And we have a bunch of people on the Discord that help out with that, and so I just want to big them up real quick because I doubt that anybody thinks much of them when they're thinking about Rebel, but they are a huge part of what we do. Yeah, yeah. When I was looking for somebody to to come on for this interview, um, yeah, I got like lots of people in the Discord talking not only about like you know the interview, but also like pointed me at things like the Fairphone, uh, yeah, you know, as like other other subjects that I could uh, tackle in this episode. So, yeah, it's a good good community. It's an amazing community. I mean, that's what keeps it going, and that's why it exists is because of the community that Pebble built and that we continue to foster and that continues to live on so yeah let's uh let's rewind the clock a little bit here and talk about kind of the a brief history of of pebble itself like the company the hardware that they made and the platform um because i only like yeah i only got my pebble time uh right towards the end of of i think it was like a few months before the company got bought oh no okay uh sure so um I actually gave I actually gave a talk on this recently for um, something called ThingsCon Salon in the Netherlands. So um, I, I, I did a, uh, a, a refresher myself on on Pebble's history as part of that. Um, I don't know how far back you want to go, but um, basically uh, Eric Michikowski, um was riding around on a bike. Actually, strangely enough, also in the Netherlands, um, and just kind of had the idea that he would like something to get his notifications and control his music on. And um, he created a prototype called the Watchduino, which is an Arduino-based uh, PCB that he made with a couple of buttons and a little battery and a Nokia screen on it. And it could, you know, receive text, um, display music um, tracks, and uh, obviously tell the time because it is a watch. Um, from there, I believe the next evolution was the Alert to Impulse, which was uh, kind of a niche product for BlackBerry users back when... BlackBerry was a bit more popular, um, and they eventually brought it to Android, I think. Um, but then they were accepted into Y Combinator and uh, launched that first Kickstarter, which was, you know, at the time, the biggest Kickstarter ever for the what we now refer to as the OG Pebble. And, uh, you know, I think most people know the story from there, but um, they kept doing more Kickstarters for the Pebble Time and then the Pebble 2 and Core and um, Time 2. And... Uh, that was kind of the genesis of the, the hardware. Um, for me personally, I backed the first Kickstarter and uh, actually had a bad experience. Um, oh no! With with uh, with that, the uh, the I backed the gray one, and um, it just happened that they made the black ones first, and you could actually buy it in Best Buy before um, I'd actually received my. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting some eye messages that aren't even mine. Can we pause for a second while I deal with this? Yeah, sure. Sorry about that. This is, uh, these are actually my daughters. How do I? I'm not really a big iOS user and I need to get, I thought I killed this, but. I'm not either, as you well know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, I'm using my Mac just because it's got good uh, audio is why I'm using that for the Skype. Yeah. No, I had had quit it. Let's see if I can somehow disable notifications forever. Notify me. Play sound effects. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. Hopefully that will stop. 
<laughs> um, should I just take it again from the top of the history of Pebble? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I think, uh, yeah, you can just start from like the talk about the gray one versus the black one and the timing there. Yeah, so I actually had a, a bad experience with uh, Pebble initially. I backed the gray OG, and um, for some reason they produced the black ones first. And you could actually buy a black one in Best Buy before I'd received my Kickstarter one. Um, so I was kind of upset about that. And then when I did finally receive it, uh, it was defective. Um, after a couple hours of use, uh, I got screen tearing, and uh, they replaced it, which was uh, the beginning of my love affair ever since then. Everything was great, and uh, it was really when I started developing that things took off for me personally. They uh, they had the SDK. The first SDK was really quite gnarly, and I think I kind of looked at it, got scared, and ran away. But when the 2.0 beta came out is when I got into it, and the Pebble time was on Kickstarter, and I was thinking, you know, I want to get um, some apps ready in time for the Pebble Times launch, and that's kind of what got me excited and got me into app development. And I made my first, published my first watch face, which was PWDOS, which is a little DOS prompt that lives on your wrist, um, just <laughs> to be silly. And from there, I, you know, things really took off. I started going to every hackathon that I could find. I, you know, founded a local user group and became what they call a Pebble rock star. Um, I got involved with uh, the uh, Pebble book that came out. I don't know if you know about that, but basically any opportunity to be involved with Pebble, I was right in there spending all my free time on Pebble stuff, and I just couldn't get enough Pebble development, especially um, smart straps was my favorite thing. I went to the Pebble Rocks Boulder Hackathon. We went all the way to Colorado from here in Michigan just to attend that, and... Uh, it was kind of all my favorite things in one place, pebbles and hardware hacking. And it was, uh, that was kind of really where I fell in love forever and kind of could never recover. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, man, I'd forgotten about the smart straps concept. Yeah. Um, the, and th that was like a kind of a hardware version of like an API. Is, is that a good way of thinking about that? Sure, yeah, so you're talking to the right person because smart straps are totally my jam. And I have every smart strap that was ever made or even ones that weren't made. And I've made a bunch myself, mostly just silly things, just to just because it's funny. Like I added a keyboard, an external keyboard to my pebble <laughs> so I could type into my dust prompt and things like that. But yeah, it was um, so at this uh, hackathon that I mentioned, Pebble Rocks Boulder, they uh, released the new firmware that enabled the smart strap as well as the API that enabled the smart strap. And as far as what you could do from there, um, the opportunities, you know, abound for whatever you can imagine. Things that people have really done and um, that either created ship, uh, Kickstarters for or even shipped properly were the Refone Smart Strap um, made by Seed, which uh, has GPS, uh, battery, and uh, NFC capabilities, adds those. Oh. Um, that's more of a maker-focused thing. It's not really something that you would wear every day because it's kind of fragile and uh, it's more developer focused. Um, there was the PAL smart strap, which is the most successful campaign in my opinion. I actually helped beta test um, that and it added GPS and battery. And this was, you know, consumer ready and it really shipped to consumers and they did a good job. And then all the rest of them, there was another small handful of smart straps, which were on Kickstarter. Uh, Pebble actually gave, provided a, a million dollar 
uh, kind of purse um, to help support SmartStrat development. So there was a proliferation of Kickstarter campaigns from there. And the rest of them were kind of still in process uh, when Pebble folded. And at that point, everyone except for PAL kind of gave up. And uh, some refunded, um, like the Tilt View Pulse um, guys refunded their customers, but um, some others did not do that. And I won't mention them <laughs> on the podcast, but um, the Tilt View Pulse is another one. I'm actually wearing it right now. It um, adds heart rate uh, capabilities to Pebble Time, um, which is something the Pebble 2 has. Um, but this is on the previous generation Pebble Time, which is kind of exciting because it's a really good application of something practical and it really works i can i can test my heart rate right now yeah so like that literally was like the my first thought was like oh yeah you can just like add a heart rate sensor to like you know yeah. one that doesn't have one um and i mean d- does that integrate then into uh pebble health or does d- would that need like a third-party app to capture Excellent that question. data so the the smart strap api as it existed I mean, you can do anything. You could define um, whatever you want. So the hackathon I mentioned, um, our project was an altimeter. We thought it'd be funny since we were in Colorado, which is uh, <laughs> very high up compared to us in, in Michigan, um, to do an altimeter. And so, uh, you know, that's what we happened to pick for ours. But there were several services, um, such as HeartRate, um, which were actually going to get baked into the Pebble firmware. And so had, you know, the next minor release of um, Pebbles OS gone out, uh, the Tilt View Pulse would have been able to log directly into Pebble Health. But as it stands right now, because that never manifested, um, the only way to do it is either with their app or if you make your own app that uses um, the specific protocol that they do. Okay, yeah. And then from there, it could like synchronize with Google Fit and whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, nice. Um yeah, it's that that really impressed me when when they announced like the whole um, smart smart strap yeah. concept. I was like, wow, okay, they're not just making like a software platform. This is like you know a hardware platform that is like totally open and interoperable. Uh, yeah. that's it, and that's like almost unheard of. Yeah, I mean, I lost my mind when they announced that <laughs> the Kickstarter because uh, all the time that I wasn't spending doing Pebble stuff. I was spending, you know, hardware hacking on Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and stuff like that. So combining those things in one place on my wrist was just like the ultimate thing for me, which, like I said, is why we went as far as Boulder just to participate in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think would have happened to like Pebble hardware if like the community hadn't formed Rebel and, you know, gotten servers up and running and, and software support and whatnot? Yeah, well, I mean, so we're pretty lucky um, because of the way Pebble architected things. They were pretty open and forward thinking. Um, I mean, we could have been luckier, for example, if they'd have open sourced their firmware, that would have been great. Um, it saved us a lot of work, but um, things like being able to sideload apps and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff makes it way easier for us. Um, so that said, though, I mean, without Rebel, um, Pebbles would still be pretty usable. Um, you'd be able to get notifications. Um, you'd be able to slide load apps, like I mentioned. Uh, you'd be able to get 
some timeline notifications if you added something to your calendar, mm. uh, for example, but not the real timeline, which is something we added. Um, so then the things you wouldn't get um, that we do provide through uh, RWS are, you know, the App Store, uh, Dictation, uh, Timeline. Um, in fact... Weather? So Fit sorry, sorry, go ahead. Weather? Weather, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Fitbit, there was actually, in the first first days or weeks when um, we heard the announcement and we just started reverse engineering everything. Um, one of the things that we attacked early on was the, uh, was the apps and uh, the App Store API. And someone figured out pretty quickly that you could actually um, use an alternative boot server and swap out all of the endpoints with your own. And <clears throat> that's basically what's allowed us to do um, Rebel Web Services is instead of all the things that point to Pebble, which don't exist anymore, we just point them to us. Um, so that was something, I don't know why that was in there, honestly. I'm guessing it was in there so that they could do testing and, you know, point it to a development machine or a staging server mm. um, before production. Um, but we got really lucky with that. And um, See, It seems like kind beyond... of a security vulnerability, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely some security stuff that helped us out as well. <laughs> um, but what I was going to say is... Um, Fitbit actually published another version of the app post Pebble that kind of opened stuff up even more, um, both made it easier to um, point to alternative services, like I said, and also, if you didn't want to do that, um, skip the need for authentication period. So you could at least use your Pebble app and sideload apps and, you know, you wouldn't get any of the online stuff. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to Fitbit there because they actually published a new version of the app to help, I mean, us specifically, honestly, as well as um, the Pebble audience in general, which was a really cool thing that they definitely didn't have to do, and we appreciate a lot. Nice. So, yeah, you, you talked a little bit about some of the 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 methods that, that uh, Rebel had to use to, to get this to work. Um, are there any other hurdles that uh that jump out at you that that we can talk about it's funny i was thinking about this and i mean there's definitely been hurdles but everything's been bizarrely surmountable like we've never i, I don't know if it's just luck or forward thinking from pebble or what but anytime there seemed like something that could be an immense or you know insurmountable challenge we've always got around it um I think the, the bigger challenge has been just kind of like bandwidth and, and focus um, rather than anything technical. Um, I mean, when the iOS app left the App Store, that, that would have, I probably would have been saying that was a, a fatal challenge if it weren't for the fact that we were able to um, have our friends at Fitbit bring that back. But, I mean, lots of things are very hard. Replacing the entire firmware is very hard. Making that making it last for anything like the seven to ten days that you know pebble time steel lasts that stuff is hard uh it's not impossible um it's mostly about just resources and bandwidth and i feel like we've been so lucky that we really haven't had any fatal problems yet knock on wood <laughs> <laughs> yeah even the like 
the issue of figuring out um how to how to financially support the project um you know and the fact that like servers have to be run and you know um and i think oh was i what did i see this in a in a recorded talk or was this in a blog post uh where um they were talking about like that that like we just kind of threw a number out there of like yeah maybe we charge people thirty dollars a year and maybe that'll maybe that'll bring in the right number of people to cover all the costs and it it just worked yeah so this is Catherine again um she had come up with a spreadsheet um trying to estimate all the different costs it was extremely elaborate and uh she had a number i don't remember what it is off the top of my head but she had a number that based on a bunch of assumptions was kind of what we would need in order to break even on the expenditure as far as um, AWS and dictation and weather and all the little odds and ends that go into supporting the platform. And uh, so, yeah, she had her calculation. And, I mean, I was willing. I think maybe she was willing. In fact, Eric was willing to chip in a little bit to keep things online uh, if if that needed to happen. Uh, But once... Once the Fitbit um, deadline elapsed uh, on July the 1st, um, we started taking subscriptions and it became very clear very quickly that um, finances weren't actually going to be a problem. Uh, I put I put $500 of my own money into a bank account so that we could have a place for money to go. And, you know, I'd spent money on domains and stuff like that because it's worth it to me just to have a pebble life. Um, and, I, you know, if I could have recouped those costs at some point, that would have been nice. But I was willing to, you know, chip in a couple hundred bucks a month maybe to keep my precious pebble going. But uh, that was just not a concern. Once the floodgates opened, you know, within days we had enough to keep the lights on for months. Um, within weeks or months we had enough to keep the lights on for years and um so that's again just a thing that was perhaps seemed like a big challenge initially and then just wasn't (laughs) nice um do you think that this kind of community project would work for like any hardware that loses its parent company um and if not then like yeah what what did pebble do that made this possible i suppose we we kind of covered some of this Um, yeah like the Um, endpoints and everything yeah yeah, so it's funny because I actually, Pebble isn't my only thing like this. And I mentioned that uh, presentation I gave for ThingsCon. And the topic of that was kind of keeping old, uh, I believe it was called IoT Darlings alive. Um, and some of the other things they talked about, uh, other presenters talked about were, I don't know if you remember this, but there's something called the little printer. And there's this little tiny printer. And it printed out basically kind of receipts and it had like a little face on it and it was just a cool, strange thing. Um, and another one was the Nabaz tag bunny, which was a long time ago, this kind of appliance internet appliance that would sit on your desk and give you notifications that you got an email, you know, back before people had phones or anything that were doing that. Um, so there's kind of these quirky things that people fall in love with. Uh, for me personally, in addition to those, uh, the Chumbi has been another one. I don't know if you remember that. It's another 
information appliance that just kind of sits on your desk and spews RSS and Twitter feeds at you. Ooh. And I have a uh, I have an Ibo robot dog that I'm still still going. So I, I kind of I personally am I'm quite active in the keeping old stuff that everyone else forgot about alive <laughs> universe, I guess. Um, but I mean, a lot of it is because of Pebble's um, openness. Uh, like I said, side loading the apps and things like that. Also, just kind of the community that Pebble created is probably the biggest thing. Uh, uh, someone uh, I was talking to about this the other day said something like, you're not going to get this same enthusiasm for keeping you know, a Samsung S7 alive. Nobody cares about a Samsung S7. It's a boring slab that got replaced with the S8, whereas the Pebble is a charming thing that's unlike anything else and specifically hasn't been recreated or superseded since according to the people who care about the pebbly aspects of pebble like buttons and always on display um so there's a big community out there um who are all very passionate about pebble and that helps keep us going whether through active participation of those people contributing um subscriptions or code or even just those people being excited and keeping us excited. And that community is, you know, all thanks to Pebble. They did an amazing job with community building and specifically with developer relations. They did an amazing job. Um, all of their documentation was amazing. Like I mentioned, they had hackathons and the, these rock stars like myself that organized local meetups. And they just created an amazing developer community and larger community of people that just love their thing. So the openness helped make it technically possible and the community made it, you know, kind of worthwhile. What's going to make it work? Teamwork. Oh, I've, <laughs> I totally botched it. It's okay. We'll fix it in post. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so so where are we at currently with Rebel? Um, I know you you mentioned like the new uh, app store has just been opened, and by that we mean like an app store for Pebble apps. Yes. Yeah, so um, since the beginning, since those early reverse engineering days, we've always had the kind of same list of uh, things that need to be solved. Uh, one of them is RWS, which Catherine, you know, did the bulk of uh, before our timeline, but there's still some little things out there, like the App Store submissions, which is the thing that just went live. Before then, um, apps and watch faces were kind of set in stone. There was no way to update them, and now we can actually update them. So the first new Pebble app has been published, and developers who want to publish new apps or watch faces or update their existing ones can now do so. It's uh, not the smoothest process. Um, there used to be a portal where this was all self-serve and we're not quite there yet. But So RWS, the App Store, Dictation, Weather, all those things are pretty nicely uh, handled at this point. Um, one thing that's always been there um, but just hasn't received a lot of attention is the mobile apps. Uh, with RWS, we had a firm deadline. It was we had to do it before Fitbit turned the servers off. With the mobile apps, there's not such a firm deadline. It's more uh, as the mobile OSs continue to evolve, they break things in the apps. It's like shocking that the apps work at all since they haven't been updated <laughs> in so long, but they do. And there's workarounds for some of the things that don't work. 
um, maybe iOS 14 will come out and nothing will work at all. And that'll be a new scramble to create that app. But um, that's just not been anything that's received a lot of attention. Same thing on Android. I mean, it got removed from the Play Store because of their new um, security policy, but it can be sideloaded easily. So there's really no reason to spend a lot of resources on that. And even if something happened with that, there's still Gadget Bridge, so people can use Gadget Bridge, or we could fork Gadget Bridge and add all the kind of internet stuff back in that um, that they aren't fans of. Um, so that's the mobile apps and RWS. Um, and then, obviously, uh, the firmware is another big thing. That's uh, something we have to do ourselves from scratch. That's something we've been working on pretty much since the beginning, um, creating a new free RTOS-based operating system that behaves like Pebbles and is compatible with the existing API so that uh, all of our apps that people have written can just be recompiled and will work. Um, or not even recompile, actually. Um, so that is a big part of it, is the firmware. And in parallel with the firmware is hardware. Uh, hardware is getting old. The Pebble 2s have kind of a defect where, oh dear, sorry about that. Apparently FaceTime and iMessage is the two things I can't make go away. I shouldn't have used this Mac. <clears throat> okay. It's all right. I can't hear it. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. I didn't realize that. I forgot about that part. Okay. Let's take a look at that again. <laughs> um, so the other part is hardware, which um, goes kind of in parallel with firmware. We need new firmware to replace. We need new firmware to replace um, Pebbles because we don't have the source code, so we have to recreate it from scratch. Um, again, there's no super firm uh, deadline there like there was with RWS. As much as it's just something that's interesting for people to hack on, and a lot of people like to be involved in working on it because it's fun. But where there is a need for it is on the hardware side. The Pebble 2s are failing because of their button defect. Um, even Pebble Times and Pebble Time Steel's buttons are getting older and their batteries are getting older and their gaskets are getting older and they're not waterproof anymore. So device, the number of devices out there is only ever shrinking. It's never getting bigger at the moment. And uh, the OGs, uh, a lot of those are still kicking somehow, which is just amazing. And some of them have uh, not the original Kickstarters, but... Uh, a later release of those actually came with screws on the back, so they're easy, easy. They are possible to swap batteries on, things like that. But um, hardware is something we're definitely thinking about, and we have a couple of different avenues that we're um, pursuing on that, and we've got a couple different prototypes that we're playing with. Um, I have on my desk right now, actually, sort of a breadboard pebble. Um, it's running... Rebel OS, and it looks, well, it doesn't look anything like a Pebble because it's just a bunch of wires and, <laughs> um, and a breadboard, but it, uh, it, runs, it runs our new operating system and uh, could be theoretically shrunken down to go on your wrist. Um, lots of things don't work, you know. Um, power management is not even, a, not even a consideration at this point, and um, most of Bluetooth and, you know, this many reasons that it's not even close to production ready, but basically getting firmware done and really getting some new hardware somehow 
um, to run that new firmware, just since nobody else seems interested in making anything Hevel-esque. It's kind of the next thing. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I remember... I remember a recent blog post that was talking about, yeah, if we if we only ever have uh, a dwindling number of um, yeah of units out in the wild, then like you know eventually it just won't be feasible to keep the servers online for the few people who are still around. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was Josh's blog post, and uh, like I said, I've got a breadboard. Um, that's just some parts slapped together on my desk, but he actually made a uh, custom PCB um, with the same parts mostly uh, that is even closer to being something that, you know, just needs to be shrunk down, just needs to be as if that's not <laughs> a big deal. But um, yeah, he has, a, he has a working prototype as well um, with a custom PCB that he made, which runs Rebel OS and, uh, you know, allows for further um firmware and hardware development which is really exciting yeah yeah i uh, i don't have one of the pebble twos but i am kind of surprised that my pebble times like buttons have lasted this long because yeah. I, I spent the entire summer after i got it uh playing that like that digging game oh no the little minor <laughs> guy and so i was constantly pressing the the down button uh, <laughs> and it got really mushy. <laughs> yes, that's what my pe my Pebble Time Steel. Um, I'm I'm not a pixel miner addict, but um, my Pebble Time Steel, the down button just seemed to be the one that you press the most because it's how you scroll through yeah. your list notifications or individual notifications. And that one is a little bit mushy on mine, but but it's still going. So. Yep. Yep. Um. Yeah. All right. So. I think that covered everything that uh, that I had in mind. Is there anything, any other uh, pressing issues that you wanted to cover? Um, I'm not sure there are any other pressing issues. I guess maybe a message I'd, I'd like to share if I can um, is just people who are aware of Pebble and who uh, love Pebble or care about keeping things like Pebble alive. I'd love to see those people get involved, um, whether as just, you know, posting things on Reddit to show your excitement about Rebel so that we know it's worth working on or retweeting our tweets or, you know, if you are a developer, we are always looking for more developers and more bandwidth because that's kind of our biggest problem right now is just bandwidth. We have a lot of people who are very excited, but as an open source software with no, we're not paying people to complete a job, so people are welcome to kind of fade out whenever they want. Um, it's a lot of fun to work on this stuff, so I'm going to do a blog post sometime soon um, along the lines of sort of help wanted, where I let people know how they can contribute. It's not just developers. Um, like I said, we have sort of customer service uh, people that help others out um, with their watches. We have graphic designers that help us out with some of the assets. We have all kinds of uh, slots that need filling, and that's a continual thing. I don't know that we'll ever have enough bandwidth. So anyone who is interested in helping keep Pebbles alive or just hacking on a cool open source hardware project, if you're not familiar with Pebble, it would be really great if you could uh, get in touch with us on 
uh, Twitter or Reddit or any of the many social media. Yeah, and maybe maybe if you uh, use a third-party Pebble app that um, you yeah. know is isn't quite working the way it used to, like uh, it occurred to me that like oh yeah, I've got this this uh, Google Maps navigation you know like mirroring app yes. that like yeah it it doesn't detect things like um, transit directions right you oh, know yeah. because because yeah. that's a new type of notification that google maps added after pebble yeah. went under and so like yeah of course the app doesn't recognize those um, yeah uh, sounds like you're talking about navme probably uh and yes yeah, yep. that, that's just one of the yeah it's it's the the continual march of the mobile os's and the other related technologies like google maps and things like that is they keep going and they keep evolving um even though pebble's kind of stuck in the past but uh, i mentioned dialer for example and um, there's some other apps that we're kind of working on adopting. So maybe the original developers aren't interested, maybe they've moved on, they've got an Apple Watch or Android Wear or whatever. And so if there are apps like that that people care about, I am, like I said, one of, my, one of the things I do is kind of liaise with um, other developers and partners to see if they will consider donating their source um, to Rebel because for things like that. Uh, one thing that happens very often is there's a really nice watch face and it still works as a watch, but it's weather doesn't work. And the reason is, is that the API key or the API itself has changed since it was published. And so there's a lot of these uh, weather apps, uh, or not necessarily weather specifically, but there's a lot of watch faces out there whose weather is no longer functioning. Mm. And that would just be such an easy fix a lot of the time. It's maybe just tossing a new API key in there. It's maybe updating the code slightly to work with a slightly different API version if the one that it's using got sunsetted or whatever. So sharing things like that is really helpful because um, a lot of the time they are open source already. And if someone is lamenting over their missing app or watch face, the first thing I do is you know search GitHub and or the App Store has links to source code a lot of the time. And I can find someone's app and see like the one or two lines that need fixing and fix it up for someone and they can have their app back. So definitely tell us about those things. And there's loads of people excited about Pebble app development who will hop on there and probably do whatever you ask them. Yeah. Oh, man, I just pulled up the NavMe uh, listing in the Google Play Store. That is that is quite the icon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I not me specifically. I, I haven't done the same thing with, but that's something where, similar to uh, Dialer, um, if the if the original developer is no longer interested in it, then uh, we could take it over. I know it says on there right now, like I'm not developing for it anymore. So maybe that'll be the next one to reach out to to see if he wants to contribute his source to Rebel. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, as somebody who uses that uh, on a like almost daily basis, like, <laughs> I, yeah, I might be interested in in taking a look. And I mean, I haven't like done any actual development since college, but uh, <laughs> so I'd probably be in way over my head. Well, while we were talking, I've made a note to look into that one just for you. Yay! <laughs> awesome. Um. Final question, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, me personally, um, my 
personal website is ishotjr.com. Um, my Twitter is, unfortunately, somebody else got ishotjr, so it's just ish junior ishjr is my twitter and on github it's again ishotjr so any of those will get you to me somehow or another um rebel as a larger entity um the website is rebel.io the twitter is and i'll explain why in a second pebble underscore dev and the <laughs> github is pebble dash dev and there's actually a fun story if we have time <laughs> for, about that, which is um, Rebel itself actually started out as kind of a wiki. Um, it was me and a couple other developers um, who wanted to just kind of aggregate some documentation, uh, best practices, things like that in a wiki to kind of up our and everybody's uh, Pebble development game. And so we started out as a, as a wiki called Pebble Dev. And so that's why the GitHub and the Twitter are called that instead of being called Rebel. And in those early days when everyone was panicking, we the wiki was kind of the hub for all of our activity. Uh, also the Discord, which is also, by the way, a great way to get in touch with us. There's a link to that on rebel.io. I won't try and say what the URL is for that because it's just a bunch of random letters. Um, but the wiki is kind of where we all convened all of our reverse engineering knowledge and and built on what everyone else was figuring out while you know people are reverse engineering the app store api and people were scraping the app store based on that um api uh, intelligence and pulling down all the apps so we had to archive before the servers got shut off potentially tomorrow before we knew that fitbit was going to keep them on so that's actually a fun story is that we is that rebel actually started out as sort of a, a developer wiki and just exploded into the thing we are today. And that the name of the wiki uh, turned out to be unfortunately prophetic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so RIP Pebble, long live Pebble. Mm -hmm. I believe that's what the, the Twitter says, something like that. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me on here. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll I'll be sure to send you uh, send you a link to it when uh, when it comes out. Should be should be by the end of the month. Awesome! I'm excited. And so it's a it's a larger thing about you know similar things, keeping all kinds of things alive. Yeah, not yeah. So like keeping keeping old tech alive is one of the angles, but um, you know everything from like uh, trying to make sure that we're our electronics aren't consuming too much electricity to yeah. like um, yeah, what do like how do we properly recycle things once they have reached the end of their lives and um, cool. yeah. Yeah, that's so fascinating because it was never anything I was doing intentionally to, like, I, I didn't, I, well, Rebel isn't like an ecological mission for me, but it is like a really cool byproduct and kind of made me think about all the other things that I have like this. I mean, Pebble is just one of a dozen other things that I've kept alive that should have died ages ago, like... Um, I mentioned the Chumbi and the Ivo and things like that earlier. Like those are things that you know the companies folded or stopped supporting mm -hmm. probably over a decade ago at this point, if not more, two decades or something. Um, so it's really interesting. Uh, I guess I, I do that a lot, keep things out of landfills a lot, whether I'm intended to or not. <laughs>
Yeah. And I think I've I've probably learned more during the process of researching this episode yeah. than any other. Um, yeah. You know, because like uh, so many of the other episodes I've done uh, have tackled like concepts that I learned about while taking computer science courses yeah. in college. Uh, but yeah. this, is, this is like, you know, just this is something that very, very few people spend a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know I certainly hadn't until you know, the past couple of weeks when suddenly uh, it was, you know, a thing that kind of just blew me away. I'm like, oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing it like, you know, not prolifically, but I'm doing it often without even realizing it. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. a really cool angle on this stuff. And, you know, luckily um, the whole like keeping stuff alive and like, you know, trying not to buy a new phone every two years kind of thing is like, it's also just makes financial sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's a good side effect. Yeah, I, I, I wish. Uh, for me personally, I just buy like tons and tons of pebbles and stuff. So it probably doesn't for me. But <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, you were the one who was willing to put in a you know a couple hundred dollars a month to keep uh, this project alive. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, thirty three dollars a year. That sounds good. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I am just the biggest pebble zealot out there. That's so pretty exceptional in that regard i don't think most people would be but yeah it'd be worth it personally like i'll be the last one after everyone else has has left or whatever i'll, I'll just keep the servers running for myself if that's yeah. what it takes hopefully not but <laughs> there'll be like a, a twilight zone uh episode made about you the, the last man in the world but like yes for your request please find enclosed last pebble user on earth <laughs> yeah <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to let you go. You have a good okay. day. Cool. Um, I don't know how it all works on the podcast and stuff like that, but let me know if you need to like retake anything that didn't come out audio-wise or anything. I'll, yeah, no, I'll your, your audio has sounded available. quite good. Um, oh, good. I was really quite nervous about that, and uh, <laughs> I'm glad it worked. Yeah. Um, all right. Yeah, see you later. Yeah, see ya. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. tours i would like start here and then kind of like do the full loop and then backtrack but because it's audio it probably makes more sense to like actually like start like 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 start with the beginning like follow the journey that a device would take yeah Yeah. sure this is a very large warehouse yeah (laughs) yeah is it recording right now yes it is okay yep My name is Haley. Hi, Haley. I yeah, yeah. Why don't we uh, give us like your full name and, and what your role is here at Tech Dump? My name is Haley Walters. I worked here for two and a half years now. I'm the Office and Community Outreach Coordinator. Uh, this is our we're in our new facility. We've been here for nine months now. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, we used to have a location over on Pryor, just like two blocks down. Okay. I'll actually, head over this way. Uh, we can we can pause here for a second. Sure. Oh, you know what? Yeah. There was somebody who stopped on the street and asked me, like, where's Pryor Avenue? And I was like, I don't know exactly how to get there from here. Maybe he was looking for, like, he had yeah, an old he address. Could've, he could have, yeah. I, I, we've updated all of our stuff. Right. But sometimes still, you know, yeah. the old customers will just... You, yeah, you never know where somebody has something written down or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it's on Pryor now. Yeah. Um, 
So you kind of get our electronics two different ways. Mm -hmm. um, either business businesses will come and either drop stuff off or we can pick stuff up from them. Or residential customers can drop stuff off or we'll pick stuff up from them too. Um, and so we're currently at our uh, back door for a customer drop off, um, res residential. Um, and so we, we take anything with a battery or cord or batteries or cords. Uh, a lot of it's free, some of it has a fee so we can recycle it responsibly. Mm -hmm. And so anything, I mean, you see the all the microwaves, the, the desktops, the... Yeah, it looks like a big game of Tetris over there on those pallets. Yeah, it's <laughs> definitely a, a, a fun project to try and stack and balance everything. And, um, yeah, so if you, you have your laptop on you, we can do that now. Sure, now, this yeah. Hello. So we're going over to yeah, this yeah. desk. We have a laptop to recycle. And it's charging cord. <laughs> All free. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's free right here. Man, you. Oh, I'll give you this though. I like to get these out, man. Alright. In case we come back and tell people about it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I will slide that into... You got the microphone, what you doing? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm doing a radio piece about how we can um, use our electronics, you know, environmentally sustainably. Uh -huh. So, recycling things at the end of their lives is a big part of that. Right, right, yeah. Wow. Wonderful. This is going to be so much lighter now that the laptop's not <laughs> in it. <laughs> um, no, I... I do, uh, part of my community outreach is I do, thank you, uh, I do uh, different events where I'll go to a farmer's market or different community mm -hmm. events and uh, often will offer cell phone, tablet, charging cord, or laptop recycling and so mm -hmm. people can... Like people can just drop it yeah. off right there during yeah. the event? Okay. Yeah, they can just bring it to me and, and sometimes I get, you know, a handful of things and then sometimes I'll get like a ton of electronics. So yeah. it's just... I found out about you guys uh, when you did the um, the the robot fashion yes. show. Yeah, our yeah. robot fashion show. It's a this last year was our third annual, and we're gonna continue doing them. It's always held at Can Can Wonderland, mm -hmm. and it's a fun venue. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's a wonderful venue. If you haven't been, like anyone who hasn't been needs to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we just we just love it. We uh, the whole concept is taking old electronics and redoing it into some sort of outfit you have to i believe it's 25 or 30 percent of your costume has to be mm -hmm. repurposed or you know electronics of, to some degree and then people strut their stuff and participate in these challenges and last year we had a band and you know, it's always just yeah. so much fun so. And I, I found out about it too late to like participate, but I'm thinking about like, you know, my, like I uh, coach the robotics team mm -hmm. at Harding High School. So it's like, that would be a yeah. perfect group of kids. Yeah, no, and it's so much fun because we get, uh, over the last three years, we've gotten everyone from like, you know, five and six year old, you know, little yeah. little people who are, or parents are helping them make a costume to some like full on adults in their yeah. business career making costumes and strutting their stuff. So city council member Mitram Nelson, yep, like yep. what? She was out there. <laughs> it was, it's, it was a, yeah, it's just been so much fun to have that event. And so, um, we're currently at the, so, so kind of, as, as I was mentioning before, kind of, we get our two different, two different ways we get electronics, business and residential. We just dropped off your laptop mm -hmm. in the residential kind of section. Um, and then as things come in, they get pushed through, 
this kind of the middle of our warehouse. Mm -hmm. um, we have one one of these conveyor belt type things, and eventually we'll, it'll all be everything will just naturally. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, I'm not sure this is actually, but like it was so much fun. Like when this was like installed, because before any Gaylords were on it, it just was like, you know, you just kind of want to like uh, jump yeah. and slide. All yeah. <laughs> not, probably not advisable. No, no, no. Not, <laughs> not up to OSHA standards right. at all, but it's very tempting. Yeah. I don't think anyone actually did it, but it's tempting. Um, so as everything gets shifted, it gets kind of shifted down this area. Mm -hmm. This is a nice long, you know, a part of my tour, like this is always like the, this is why I always like start over here. Oh yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's just like an awkward bit of, we're and walking. we're walking. Yeah, look at us and we're just walking through the warehouse. Yeah. Hear the I've, sounds. And I love how we've got like different sections for like, you know, there's a bunch of laminators over there mm -hmm. and giant printers that definitely came from businesses. Um, yeah. So yeah. things are kind of grouped together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so things are already, at this point, things are already sorted into kind of similar, uh -huh. similar ish uh, giant Gaylord boxes, but they aren't actually sorted out yet right um and so that's where we are currently we're in the sorting area uh this group of people um determines what oh actually we'll we'll step over here because there's oh. A, oh yeah it's kind of, you never you just have to watch your surround you know right always make sure that you're not in the way of a, of a, a forklift um <laughs> so in our sorting area uh this team is determining what um can get refurbished mm -hmm. what gets sent off to a downstream certified vendor to be recycled or what gets taken apart in-house. So we always aim to refurbish our electronics before we recycle them. Um, and that's, um, it's, re recycling is a very important part of the whole process, but it takes a lot more energy. Right. And it, Keep, keeping things in circulation is always a better option. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. So, um, so, it gets sort, so it gets sorted into the, the stuff can be refurbished. Um, as you can see, uh, we have a pallet of microwaves. Uh, microwaves are one thing that we don't take apart okay. um, in-house. They get sent, sent off to our microwave vendor, and they will continue the process of taking apart the microwaves in an environmentally friendly way, um, break it down at the component level. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, so what's the difference between refurbishing uh, an item and like taking it apart here? in-house because like like if you take it apart does do the parts then go towards other items that you're trying to refurbish or uh, typically not typically the the stuff that we're refurbishing um, we usually end up having to get either it's like a little bit of a tweak here and there that we can just do on like the software side of things okay. or we'll end up having to order a part online okay it's I, I, so if i bring in like a laptop that has a bad stick of ram and you guys figure that out then yeah. you can order a new stick of ram and yeah. put that in yeah yeah and i think that every once in a while we can we will find you know an, a working stick of ram from our i, I don't i'm not sure 100 percent like what the crossover right, is there. right so um yeah so the stuff we refurbish in-house, the stuff that gets sent off like whole unit basically, and then the stuff that we take apart in-house. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll walk over this way. Um, this whole air, this whole section is all stuff that we'll, we will try to refurbish. Okay. Uh, as you can see, like giant boxes full of cords for computers. This is not going to <laughs> No, those are batteries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, projectors. Uh-huh monitors, laptops, desktops, networking equipment, 
There's also a, a huge miscellaneous. Actually, well, let's head in there. Oh my gosh, there's a whole box full of camera lenses. That's awesome. Yeah, because that's one of the big questions that I had written down is like, I know that that usually recycling uh, electronics is is you know mostly done by like municipal solutions, right? Yeah. Washington County or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so yeah, like I was very curious about how a private business like makes it work here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, as I said before, and as I've said multiple times, we always aim to refurbish mm -hmm. before we recycle. And so the stuff the stuff in here, this is where a lot of our money comes from. Uh, we have our hard drive wiping and testing station. Um, every uh, data bearing device that comes into our facility, uh, we uh, either do, uh, it's a government grade uh, wiping system um, or it physically gets shredded into teeny tiny pieces that we'll mm -hmm. see. I'll show you a little nice. bit later. Yeah. Uh, and then it's our miscellaneous testing area, anything from cell phones, tablets, networking equipment, gaming systems it's always fun to see the random stuff that goes that goes through there yeah uh, our laptop testing area our desktop testing area our monitor testing area uh -huh. and then all back there is ebay um, so we have our uh we sell we uh, we sell our refurbished electronics on a couple different platforms uh through ebay on our own e-commerce page on mm -hmm. our website, techdiscounts.org, or um, in our retail store. We have one located in Golden Valley, and then another one we will be opening this winter. Okay. Yeah. Is that over here in the St. Paul side? Yeah, or? it will be in this facility. Okay, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. I love I love the monitor testing station <laughs> because it looks like when you walk into you know Target and they've got all the TVs that are displaying the same image. Yeah. Yeah. No, Russ picked out that image specially. Russ does our does all the monitor testing, mm -hmm. um, and he picked out that you know picture specially just to you know, yeah. soothe the soul. It's got some nice blue. Yeah. The ocean. Yeah. Oh. Any other? I don't know. I love I love how many like Dell Latitude laptops I'm seeing because those are like very very modular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's just always it's always fun to see. You. And I also love, love the people that work. Mm-hmm. Is this? I mean, you know. So I I know a lot of uh, students who you know are very interested in technology yeah. and stuff. Would this be an a like, do you, do, you, do you guys need, like, seasonal, you know, like, if a student wants a job over the summer kind of thing, is, is this somewhere I could point them to, or? Yeah, so, so typically, and I, it's hard to say no to, like, you know, a, an internship of some, right. some degree. Um, the majority of our employees face barriers to employment in some capacity, and mm -hmm. so, um, so people who have, yeah, just adults who face some sort of barrier, one way or another. And so I would say probably not, but oh yeah. <laughs> Get to stage your glasses on. Um, yeah, but I'd say that'd definitely be, you can probably ask the man more about that one. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's, that's probably not a question that will be in the episode yeah, yeah, itself, yeah. but yeah. like, you know, yeah, no, I'm I, personally I, curious. I, I would say, like, especially since it's not, like, probably not. We probably right. wouldn't. It's, 
but also if someone was like looking to like come in and get some like experience mm-hmm. in the tech world, I don't think we'd like turn them down. Right, you know, right. Get to know their resume. Uh, so we're currently in the teardown area of our facility. These are all the electronics that come through here are electronics that have some sort of precious metal or that at, that would have some value to us on the component side of things. So okay. as you see here, the guys are tearing apart all the different electronics to the circuit boards, the copper, the cord, the metal, uh, and now we have Gaylords full of, of circuit boards or... Yeah, and I'm like, okay, so the circuit boards that I'm looking at here are definitely like, these are... A much older style you know these capacitors aren't used in like motherboards nowadays for the most part so like what like is there anything that's too old for you guys to take no and actually the 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 older it, it kind of goes on two different two different sides so the older the electronic typically the more precious metals are, okay. are in that item um so would those get like melted down and yep, used as their core melted, components? Melted, smelted down, crushed up, and then turned into the next electronic. Okay. Uh, the newer electronics are nicer for us because we can refurbish them and sell them. There's mm-hmm. kind of that middle area that's actually a little, you know, it's a little bit sticky because we, because we'll still take them and we will, you know, we'll take all the electronics that you have. It's just kind of the, it's kind of a weird gray area yeah. where no one's gonna want to buy a laptop from 2000. Or, right. You know, eight or whatever. It's um. it's like it's like that awful time when we had like cars that didn't have cassette players mm-hmm. and also didn't have like an aux cord, yep. you know, yeah. input. So there was no way for me to plug in my phone yep. to anything mm-hmm. that just has a CD player. Totally, totally. <laughs> so we always in- we encourage people we encourage people to bring in all their electronics. But really, if you if you just updated your smartphone or if you just got a new laptop bring in your old, you know, that, that one step back, like bring it in like as, as fast as you can because that has more of a market value for us now. Um, and it has a higher chance of like being, being re, like yeah. recirculated, yeah. Yeah, totally. This is so much fun. This is, this is the good ambient audio. <laughs> like these are much larger than the motherboards that I'm used to seeing <laughs> no it's, it's crazy to see the different sizes and even just like I had never seen a printer as as big as they come yeah until I started working here and just all the random weird electronics that you just aren't you know you wouldn't find in your home mm-hmm. or even in a lot of like corporate offices so um, after everything gets torn down to the component level um, or separated into stuff that will get you know, sorted by another vendor or taken apart by another vendor. Um, it is separated, it is, it's put into these kind of two bays to be taken off-site and to continue the process of, you know, we, we're only like one step in this massive chain right. of, of different people and companies who handle electronics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We'll actually head this way. Okay, I think I'm, I'm gonna take a panorama photo yeah. Just in case I want to use that for like my show notes. Uh, I think right, probably like without. Yeah, that? yeah. I just yeah. I just want the uh, yeah, yeah. the whole warehouse. 
Yeah, I'm glad that I came down here, because I, uh, where are you going? <laughs> I, I toured the Washington County um, electronics facility as well. Yeah. And theirs is like, basically just, they, they grab computers out of people's cars, put them into these boxes, and then put them onto a, a semi-truck to go somewhere else. And I'm like, yeah. well, this is, I thought, I wanted to see some stuff get shredded, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, can't, I can't like show you anything like physically like a actively getting shredded, right. but oh yeah, do it. Yeah, as long as there aren't, aren't any hard, hard drives. Right. I'm trying to find one that would make like a really good picture. Yeah. You want like the circuit board stuff? I don't know, maybe, maybe. Mostly I'm trying to find a place where it's like I can take a picture of one that's, you know, right next to it, but also see some stuff in a few others yeah, yeah, yeah. along the row. Yeah, these ones are full enough. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah, my um my computer tech classes are in the middle of their hardware unit right now, so oh. I have them like tearing apart old Dell desktops. Oh, I love that. And yeah. <laughs> That's the best. This is uh, I'll just point this out. I'm not sure how much you know. This is our hard drive shredding room. Ooh. And so you can kind of take a peek yeah, in there. Can, yeah. That's our uh, stationary hard drive shredder. The white. Okay. The white thing. Uh-huh. Hard drives get thrown on the top and then and then this <laughs> So it's like a it's like a wood chipper. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. Wow. I wouldn't have even like if you hadn't told me these are old hard drives, I would not have recognized them. Yeah, literally just get shredded into teeny tiny pieces. So when anyone ever asks me like about our you know, data security, mm -hmm. I always kinda chuckle because it right. you know, I think of our giant box of shredded hard drives that there's absolutely, you know, no chance that anyone could ever, even if they found all the pieces, I don't know. It's just funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, I remember, like, I don't know, this was back when I was in, like, high school or something and seeing on, like, the Google blog when they put out, like, a video that was all about, like, you know, don't worry about, you know, put, like, letting all of your emails sit in Gmail servers because, like, this is what we do to the hard drives after we're done with them. And they had, you know, like, crush them, shred them, yeah. incinerate them, yeah, and I was yeah. like, whoa! <laughs> That's crazy! Yeah, no, 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 I love... I love it. Oh, actually, we'll head through the store. Sweet. Yeah, so this is... Uh, and this is just part of the normal tour. This is right. our training room. Uh-huh. Um, so this is where we meet in here every morning at 8 a.m. for a kind of a check-in, a brief check-in with the, the whole the whole company comes in here. Mm -hmm. And then once a week we have trainings, and that's anything from our you know our mandatory o OSHA trainings um, to um, you know anything from like communication, personal hygiene, some some of the basic stuff, fork some forklift training or. Uh, you know, safety training. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I love the motivational posters that we all own tech down. Because we, we do. <laughs> yeah. we, Is it a, like a literal like employee co-op kind of? No, 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 okay. no it's, it's, just, it's more like we're, we, 
we couldn't be here without everyone else. Okay. Which yeah. sounds kind of silly, you know, silly and cheesy, but it's just the, the, the true nature. At of least it doesn't so. say like we're all family. <laughs> you know, we. <laughs> that's a nice, you know, boundary in our yeah. company. We, yeah, we all love each other, but we're not. We acknowledge we're not family. So. Right. Um, yeah, but that definitely is part of our um, adults facing barriers, our training program mm-hmm. uh, that we have. This is part of the part of the whole training program is the, you know, we're, we're not, we don't see ourselves as uh, a long-term, or for, for a long time we didn't see ourselves as a long-term solution for employment. Okay. We see ourselves as a, a stepping stone mm-hmm. on your way back but, into society. Yeah. Um, so, and we do have actually a number of uh, employees who were trainees who are in our full-time staff um, and come, you know, that, and that comes along with all the benefits of being a full-time staff. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds really challenging from like the company's perspective of like n- you know in- intentionally not trying to keep employees for like you know a really long time. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, I mean we we want turnover to some degree, not mm-hmm. like you know every month, but we right. do want we we do want to be an active force in getting people back on their feet and getting them you know back in the world and mm-hmm. so yeah yeah yeah. Um, I think that's like technically the end of the tour. Cool. But we'll go in. Um, we'll go and find Amanda. Cool. And you can ask her all sorts of questions. And I think I will stop this recording. Okay. And I should pull up my question. And remind sort of the audiences or goal of the segment. Is. So yeah, the, like the extra dimension has you know a, a kind of a general audience yeah. view of, of technology. So I'm always trying to cover like, what does everybody need to know mm-hmm. about about yeah. the technology, just from whatever perspective we're covering in the, yeah. in the episode. Um, so in this case, I mean like Tech Dump is pretty perfect for that because mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, so much of the, the service that you provide is like for, I mean, not, you know, not just for companies to bring in yeah. technology, but also like, Everybody has mm-hmm. old laptops and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I like I, I try not to get into like too much into technical details that okay. like you know people aren't going to understand and that they frankly don't need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Perfect. Um, so Amanda, can you give me? Can you tell me what you had for breakfast so I can just see what our audio levels are like? Sure. I had a Nature Valley granola bar. That's a pretty light breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, let's see, I think. Um, how about, have you had lunch today yet? I have not had lunch today. One of my colleagues just brought me a bag of nuts because our neighbor, Weir Nuts, across the parking lot is finally open again for the season. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. I think we should be good there. All right. Um, so can you uh, introduce yourself, your first and last name, and what you do here at TechDump? Sure. My name is Amanda LaGrange, and I have the honor of being the CEO of TechDump. Woo. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I understand that like it's illegal to throw electronics away just in the general trash. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that? Yes. So our electronic devices contain what can become hazardous waste if exposed to water. So inside of a computer, there's a wonderful circuit board that 
to the world looks like a very fancy green board with things on it. Um, but to those that are kind of deep into the space, we know that there's actually lead in the board. And so if that were to get exposed to water in a landfill or perhaps be incinerated, which is another route mm. that some of our trash can take, uh, it would be really hazardous for both our air and water. Yeah, that's that's pretty crazy to think about because most people wouldn't know that like we have lead and other yeah. possibly hazardous materials in there. If you think of the old tube TVs, the CRTs, the clunky old ones, on average they contained eight pounds of lead. Jeez. So you have your kiddos watching Sesame Street having their wonderful small childhood and if by chance that TV were to somehow be broken open, there would be a significant amount of lead inside of it. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I think everybody probably understands the hazards of lithium ion batteries in that they can catch fire. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there anything like, are the base components of that hazardous by themselves? Um, by themselves, I mean, you still wouldn't want it to go into landfills or, right. or incineration. It's, I mean, kind of the, the least bad <laughs> kind of conversation that we're having of like, I don't know, like, uh, let's talk early um, LCD monitors. There is a significant amount of mercury in those. Mm. Is a small amount of mercury in an LCD TV better than eight pounds of lead in a CRT? I mean, maybe, but they're both still very hazardous right. to go into our, our waste streams. Yeah, it's like half dozen of one, six of the other. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so how much does it cost for somebody to bring in an electronic device here to TechDump? It really depends on the device. We do have some items we accept for free. So computers are a great example of that. We do with that uh, guaranteed data destruction, which is very important when it comes to computers. Uh, other items will cost anywhere between $5 each all the way up to $100 if you have one of those classic console TVs that had like the wood outline. My Mimi and Papa mm -hmm. had one that was literally like part of their furniture. Um, are those like the rear projection kind ones? Those or? are also super expensive. The consoles are the ones that have like the wood outline. Like they literally would be like something you bought to like match your furniture way back when. And they're terrible to take apart. They have to be manually disassembled um, to take the wood off. And then inside of that, as you have already learned, is a TV containing a significant amount of lead. Okay. Um, I know that like, Electronics recycling is, you know, in most areas is done by like municipally run solutions of some sort, right? Yeah. Um, how does TechDump make this work as a private company? Yeah. So for most of um, the municipalities, what they're doing is collecting electronics and then sending them on to a vendor like TechDump. Okay. Uh, in some cases for their city collection events, it is TechDump. In other cases, it's other vendors. Um, for the city of Minneapolis and Hennepin County, it actually all travels to a vendor in Wisconsin, which hmm. is an interesting conversation on tax dollars for another podcast day. Uh, but uh, for Tech Dump, we make our money on the upfront fees that we charge, the sale of commodities, which in computers, the reason we can offer them for free is that we can still make some money off of the circuit boards and steal inside of them. Not nearly what um, we used to be able to make off mm. of a computer when we were founded in 2011. Um, but the piece that people don't always know about us at TechDump is that we also sell refurbished computers. Mm. And so our ability to sell refurbished electronics, which we do under the name Tech Discounts, 
uh, and we can come back to why the name change on that one. Um, the reason that we do that is because it really creates um, the maximum kind of environmental value. The less materials that we're mining and having to extract and create, um, the better for the environment. And then the great part for our community is they can access really affordable technology. So a laptop for $150 that comes with our one-year warranty is a pretty good deal, uh, even compared to some of the Black Friday deals that I'm sure people will be checking out soon um, because it's typically an enterprise-grade system because of us recycling for mostly businesses. Um, So it's a great piece, and that's a really important part of how we pay pay our bills. Yeah, I I was looking around on the website, and I was like, ooh, an HTC One 8 for for like 100 bucks. Why not? (laughs) Yeah, and I think the big piece is um, we've learned a lot over the years on trying to make the shopping experience as close as possible to traditional retail experiences, even though it's a secondhand electronic device. So Mm -hmm. it's not like completely the thrift store experience. Um, but like, it's definitely sort of like this thrill of the hunt piece that resonates with thrifters, but everything's tested, working, comes with our one-year warranty, has a 30-day money-back guarantee. I mean, we're really trying to make it feel as similar um, as buying firsthand. And my theory so far has been once somebody buys a refurbished electronic, they never go back Mm -hmm. because it's sort of like buying a used car. They were like, I did really just like the second I fired this iPhone on, it's not worth what it was when I first purchased it. Right, right. Um, yeah, man, oh, I would never buy an electronic from a, a thrift store. Like, a, no. <laughs> no, and yet there's always like a couple printers and stereos yeah, and thrift yeah. stores. But there's no, there's normally signs that say like, there's no guarantee of this working. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's like a super retro thing, maybe I get it. But otherwise, I feel like um, that thrift store is really having to serve the purpose of an electronics recycler because the individual just didn't know what to do with it right. or that they weren't willing to actually pay to have the true cost of it covered. Mm-hmm. And so, um, unfortunately, I think, especially in the age of like Marie Kondo and is this giving you joy, our thrift stores are just getting overwhelmed with stuff that like we really as a society have to ask ourselves, like, is this going to the right place Mm -hmm. are we just giving this thrift store our problem and now they have to deal with it in the name of charity yeah um is so the the stock that you have available at tech discount like Mm -hmm. is is that highly variable based on what people have brought in or do you have a fairly consistent you know run of like the same Dell laptops from a bunch of businesses or something like that? It's a good mix. I would say our laptops and desktops are probably the most consistent because they are getting sourced from businesses. Um, But those miscellaneous items like projectors and um, gaming systems, that varies completely based on what's come in. Um, We almost always have really quality flat panel monitors for sale. Um, And so there's um, sort of like a typical mix of equipment. The brand and specs may vary. But in the last um, year, we've been doing some pilot work around um, purchasing electronics from like other recyclers. And so then we can say, all right, like we have, um, so for example, we did a back to school sale for laptops uh, in October and we had, um, I think there were iPhone 6S's for just like a stellar deal. We had a ton of them in stock and we sold them till they were gone. And so the idea would be that we get to a spot that we sort of reliably have at least an iPhone and a MacBook, um, 
a whatever Dell laptop we want to select, like that there's at least some reliability and predictability um, because that's the next step in getting more traditional right. to retail. Yeah, yeah. That consistency is, mm-hmm. is a big thing that consumers want. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's say that somebody brings a laptop to the facility, which I yeah. did, and we dropped it oh, off. Oh, excellent. Yep. <laughs> um, shout out to my brother for leaving all of his broken laptops in my house, so I have materials. <laughs> we are also very grateful to him, yes. <laughs> um, so, like, what, what process does it go through? Yeah, so our team, um, so the drop-off process would be the laptops came in, um, the person in the door would not have charged you for any of those laptops because computers are free for drop-off. And then they go into our sorting process. And our sorters are trained to decide what has the potential for reuse and what is just too old. So let's say one of those laptops had a great like Windows 95 sticker on it. It will only be recycled. Right. Um, we'll pull some components out of it for um, recycling. And then the, the sort of like carcass, if you want to call it that, of the laptop will go actually downstream to a vetted vendor who holds the same certifications, safety practices, environmental standards as us, but has multi-million dollar pieces of equipment and very fancy things that we don't Mm -hmm. yet have in our startup life. Um, And so that's where sort of the recycling path goes. If it's a newer system, which perhaps it was, um, our sorters will say, hey, this has reuse potential. And then it enters into our reuse technician space to our laptops. And they will go through our process of removing the hard drive, wiping it. Um, They'll grab a hard drive that's already been wiped to replace it. And then going through our very thorough testing process because you can't offer one-year warranty if you aren't going through a very thorough process. And um, let's say that your wonderful brother really loved Cheetos and he ate Cheetos every day while eating lunch. Or sorry, eating lunch while working. And um, that keyboard is just disgusting. And so our team would swap out the laptop keyboard. Oftentimes it's a laptop screen that's gotten cracked. Our team will swap out for working systems. And so this is part of why we've been involved with some legislation called the right to repair. Yeah. And um, the need to actually be able to source more similarly to independent car repair these parts. Because right now we're literally harvesting um, like Frankensteining pieces from all these computers that have come in so that we can like piece together just the right components to have the right pieces for this laptop. Mm-hmm. Then. Testing's complete, data's been wiped, everything's good to go. It'll go up on our e-commerce store of techdiscounts.org. Um, maybe it'll go on our brick and mortar store. It could go up on our eBay store, but less likely. Um, in some cases, we have small businesses and nonprofits and, and private schools coming in and buying like 30 systems at a time. It could be part of that mix. There's mm-hmm. a variety of places that it goes. Nice. Um, <laughs> what if your brother likes eating Cheetos? <laughs> It's possible. I feel like a lot of brothers probably like to. Probably, yeah. And a lot of sisters. Let's be real. Um, okay, so yeah, they, let's see, refurbished, parts repurposed, melted down. Yeah, we've covered a lot of that. Um, um, yeah, I, it's very interesting hearing you talk about, like, um, how you guys make sure that, like, the, the, companies that you're selling to and you know partnering with have like the same mm-hmm. you know sustainability practices and, yeah. and data security and everything because quite often we hear about like we hear about things coming from the other direction where like you know a manufacturer will 
be pressured to like, you know, make sure that their supply chain mm -hmm. is using sustainable practices. But here we are at the other end. Yeah. And we still where, have this to do is the, the start same of the same supply chain process. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It really is an odd operation. I think we run in many ways like a manufacturing facility, mm -hmm. only instead of like flipping the switch on and running a bunch of iPhones for days and days and days, we flip on a switch, which the switch is a light switch because it's just our team. Like everything's very manual. And then we are working through literally thousands of different kinds of electronics. And um, specifically our miscellaneous technicians, they're like the most, I think, um, agile and, and savvy of our entire team because they're working on any electronic that's not a desktop, laptop, or monitor. I mean, okay. we could take up your next however many thousand podcast sessions, um, naming every type of electronic that they could work on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and there's not repair manuals available for purchase like there are with cars and vehicles and other items. So it's it's a totally wild business where um, it's really hard to scale. Mm -hmm. And um, that's part of, I think, um, what we're trying to prove everyone wrong on. Like yeah. that we really can do it the right environmental way and continue to grow larger. I imagine that they probably make good use of like community resources like iFixit. Yeah, we and, love yeah. iFixit. <laughs> do they ever, are, do you guys like encourage your employees to like contribute back, you know, information to, an, you know, iFixit or something similar like that? That's a great question. I'd have to, to ask our team. Cause that, like, yeah, that, I know that there are, you know, like software development companies where like, you know, if they're using, um, open source software, you right. know, sometimes they encourage their team to like contribute yeah. code base right. back to that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had somebody, uh, one of my listeners ask, um, what about printer cartridges? Is this the kind of place they would take printer cartridges? We or? do. We have to charge for them because the okay. economics don't make sense to take them for free. Um, and I'm a super frugal person, so I always encourage people to push back on their manufacturer that they should have some take-back system to, mm -hmm. to be able to do that for free. Um, but definitely people can bring them. Cool. Um, so we talked about lead in TVs mm -hmm. and mercury and flat panels. Um, are those are those like the worst hazardous chemicals that you guys have to deal with them with? And, and how do you guys deal with those? Yeah, well, we have a really important part of our training for every employee and knowing exactly what's in here. We have a very cheesy saying to like make everyone remember. They have business cards. Um, but really, the materials are only hazardous if they're not handled properly. And so like we have OSHA through voluntarily and um, are third party certified and have that team through um, to make sure that we're in compliance. But um, I mean, lead, mercury... Um, those are probably the two biggest ones. Um, the, the pieces that I always feel like are the biggest risk to us are, um, light bulbs. Okay. We don't process them. We're just what we would call like a transfer station. Um, but those like fluorescent bulbs contain mercury. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're back to that and it's just, they're so like, they can be so brittle and delicate, yeah. um, versus like a CRT TV, like those things are clunky and it's going to take a lot before anyone would have actual exposure to lead. Um, and so, um, we don't necessarily like interact with lead on a regular basis, but if somebody broke a bulb, we have, we have all like the spill kit and buckets and 
all the pieces in place. Um, so I guess those would probably be the most um, hazardous of items. Um, the other piece that I think um, doesn't get talked about nearly enough is around data security, though. Um, so like the things that keep me up at night, um, lithium battery fires, mm -hmm. <laughs> which are a whole different um, risk. Um, there's like TVs and mercury and all, or sorry, lead and mercury and all those pieces. And then there's the role of data and just um, like there was one um, 4th of July that fell on a 4th of July was on the, on a Friday. Mm -hmm. And so we're closed and we opened back up on that Monday and somebody had come and dropped off like 10 computers outside of our door, which ironically like electronic dumping is a felony charge because it's hazardous waste. So we're like, okay, it's great that they like tried to save the environment. Also, they harmed the environment by storing this outside. And like, why weren't they worried about their hard drives in these computers? They just dropped them off. And um, like, it was like, no, no big deal. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a lot of businesses in town that even will work with uncertified electronics recyclers that I think like, how do you know for sure that your data is being securely processed like there's just sort of this comfort level that we've gained with our electronics and it really it spooks me clearly yeah. different than like a health hazard health hazard and data like not on the same length but um mm -hmm. i think we've talked for a really long time about the environmental risk of electronics recycling we haven't necessarily talked about the data risk right right or people have seen data breaches and assume like there's no right way to recycle so i won't even try <laughs> yeah yeah Someone told me that they were convinced that it was better to put their old cell phone in the trash than recycle it because of data security, which made me like puzzled for hours um, and also then felt the need to explain like lithium battery fires. Um, but like humans have wild ideas mm -hmm. about electronics and we also get really emotionally connected to our electronics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think probably newer devices it's more likely for data security to be less of a concern because like you know modern cell phones encrypt everything mm -hmm. and you know but like most desktops like windows doesn't encrypt everything by default so right. yeah <laughs> but even think about like a smart tv mm -hmm. what used to just be a tv that you could like sell in a garage sale now your smart tv if you sold it on a garage sale probably has your Amazon login mm -hmm. because of Prime and your Netflix. Like there's there's personal information that's tied in as we move towards this internet of things that right. we all need to be a little bit more aware of and not just um, pass out our <laughs> information to everyone. Granted, I should also disclose that I'm like the person that has the camera on my laptop covered, <laughs> right? Like, so maybe I'm more paranoid than yeah. the the average person, but I think you're not gotten, wearing your tin hat right now. No, oh, perfect. <laughs> um, but I think there's a piece of we've gotten so used to giving up our information um, that we need to be a little bit more um, concerned about who we're doing our electronics recycling with. Yeah. Um, so that was all the questions that I have. Awesome. Is, is there anything else about tech dump or, or technology recycling that you want people to know? Well, I think there are a couple of pieces that come to mind. One is that I invite everyone to recycle earlier. So there's this strange sort of emotional connection we have with our electronics that either we have a really hard time getting rid of something and so we hang on to it forever, even though we're not using it and there's no need to have it, or there's like the shame that we bought something that we didn't use. And so then we just hang on to it just in case anyway. But if we could all recycle our stuff earlier at the point that you stop using it, 
which I should put the caveat on it. You should use it as long as possible. Repair it, give it to somebody else for them to use it for a while and have them repair it for a while. Like use it as long as possible. But at the point that it's no longer in use, um, by getting it to a recycler earlier, it has a higher chance of use. So let's say that you still have like an iPhone 8 in a drawer and it's your backup phone that you know that you would never actually use it anyway. You would probably just go buy the 11 if you're a new technology buyer. I am not, but there are those that are. Um, rather than just so leaving the Somebody 8, has to be. Yeah, yeah <laughs> clearly, statistically speaking, somebody listening now is buying brand new phones. Um, so let's say you left the iPhone 8 in your drawer for the next three years. Had you gotten rid of it at the point that you were no longer using it, it could have been refurbished and reentered to the market. Someone could use it. And it's not just environmental, it's getting people access to affordable technology. And so there's so much good that can be done with our electronics. If we just get over either like the emotional connection or the shame piece of like, I don't want to get rid of this stuff yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other piece that I would mention that makes TechDump very different than some other electronics recyclers or even municipal programs or Best Buy's electronics recycling option is that we are using all of um, sort of the stuff that comes in as both the funding method and the training laboratory for adults facing some sort of barrier to employment. And so we have this great double mission around um, sort of proving that everyone and everything has value, that both um, individuals coming out of incarceration or in recovery from addiction have a role to play within all organizations, as well as the stuff that seems like junk, e-junk, um, that there's a lot of valuable materials. And so I do think that there's sort of this really compelling um, double mission that people can select to use TechDump and accomplish. That's a really beautiful way of putting that. Thank you. <laughs> we think it's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Um, is there, so I found out about Tech Dump through the um, the robot fashion show. Awesome. Yeah. Um, is there any other like, you know, fun community things that, that people should know about that are related to Tech Dump? Yes. Do you know when this will air yet? Um, by the end of the month. Okay. So then I will tell you. This is the first uh, news piece I've done at all about our first ever fundraiser event. Okay. It is a little quirky, as is all, all of Tech Dump's way of doing things. Um, so the name of the event is Thank You For Not Coming, the Ultimate Zero Waste Gala. So we are literally inviting people to not come to an event, but to like make sure no one's experiencing deep FOMO, fear of missing out, we will be sending them a link to a video where Tane Danger of Theater of Public Policy will host and MC an entirely empty event space as we share about our mission and our desire to truly accomplish zero waste. And it's embracing the fact that when fundraisers and galas are super wasteful and also that we're all just sort of like evented out, that we don't want to have to go to anything no more silent auctions, no more live auctions, no more schmoozing, no more like all the things that kind of just sound exhausting, right? And um, and so we're just sort of embracing the quirkiness of who we are. And um, so we'll see how it goes. So um, people can find us on anywhere on social media for Tech Dump um, with a link to our event break, which is how they will RSVP and pay to attend our event. And then the day of the event on November 12th 
at 6 p.m. They'll get a link to a video that I guarantee will be pretty hilarious. Nice. <laughs> One of my friends who organizes several like, you know, tech conferences yeah. and stuff over in Minneapolis, he because he gets burned out on this stuff as well, he uh, founded a, a conference called SkipConf, which is, yes. you know, like everybody just take today off and yep. don't go to a conference. Go exactly. to a coffee shop Exactly, exactly. Yeah, as part of it, we're inviting people to like share on social media what they're not, what they're doing because they're not at the event. <laughs> so I'm super interested to see what that's like. Um, but I think there's, um, there's a lot of ways that, sort of we have to push the question on a lot of assumptions. So whether that's that nonprofits always have fancy galas, that that's the only way to raise money, whether it's that these electronics don't have value, whether it's that there's a group of amazing employees that are frequently excluded from employment opportunities, like this is sort of just yet another way that tech dumps pushing the pushing the question at least mm -hmm. of like, is this really serving us anywhere? Is right. it time to shake it up? Um, here's a, here's a question that probably won't go in the actual episode because yeah. this is really specific to me, but like, you know, I, I teach computer tech at a high school, mm -hmm. um, and I, I bet I probably have a lot of students who are interested in, you know, computer hardware. Yeah. Um, would like, would tech dump be a place where they could do like seasonal, like, you know, summertime employment or something like that? Potentially. Or, okay. We had our, we had an intern this summer, which was sort of our first time doing, um, just seasonal. Um, and that person was just like amazing at taking apart electronics. Um, so I think there could be sort of a, a special side. We do work with a couple of high schools in town um, that have individuals that are in that 18 to 24 range that they're still connected with um, the high school, but not in traditional um, education environments. And so um, we found that to work really well for interns as well. Cool. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm glad you... So how did you hear about the Robot Fashion Show then? Was um, it social? Yeah, I think um, Mitra Nelson yes. posted about it because she yeah. was participating. Yeah. And yeah, like I'm I'm in the whole like transportation, yeah. you know, housing density, urbanist like sphere. Yeah. So Awesome. Yeah. yeah, she's amazing and an inspiration and our council person. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm jealous. I'm I'm over in Ward One. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good it's a good spot to be. We just moved into this space at the end of January mm -hmm. um, during the polar vortex, which is a great time That's a fun to move. Time. Yeah. 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 But yeah, our robot fashion show is um, like one of the great examples of what happens when uh, employees bring their whole selves to work. And at the time that um, Teresa and our staff shared this idea, I was like, how would we ever do that? Like, would that work? And next year will be our fourth year. Yeah. So so if anyone's listening that wants to participate with either um, a team or be a model for a robot-inspired costume, or you could technically build a robot, but that's a big, <laughs> that's a big ask. Um, our event for 2020 will be on April 26th and you can go ahead and, and register, uh, on our website coming soon. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I found out about it a little too late to have like the robotics team at Harding, yeah. you know, participate, yeah. but like, I bet they would be super into yes. it. <laughs> this is the year. This is the year. It's going to be bigger and better than ever. Um, we're, yeah, we're pumped. <laughs> mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, it was a delight to meet you. You too. Yeah, one more Cheesy time. hash browns with uh, cornflakes sprinkled on top. Okay. 
That looks pretty good. Okay, so uh, Adam Frederick, what is your role here at the... Uh, yeah, introduce yourself. What's your role here? So I'm Adam Frederick. I'm the program coordinator here at the Washington County Environmental Center in Woodbury, Minnesota. Uh, we're open to residents of Washington County, of course, and then we have a reciprocal use agreement with all residents of the metropolitan counties. Okay. So that not just Ramsey County, that includes... Uh, Anoka, Hennepin, Ramsey, Scott, Washington, Carver, and Dakota. Okay. Wow, yeah. Because as a resident of Ramsey County, uh, you know, I get quarterly little pamphlets saying like, hey, you can bring your electronics to such and such collection day. Um, right. Well, Ramsey County actually does not collect electronics. They only collect household hazardous waste. Okay. So we get a lot of residents from Ramsey County coming here to drop off electronics. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. That's definitely good for me to know because, uh, yeah, I probably would have showed up to one of those days <laughs> expecting to be able to get rid of a few laptops and stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so so why, why can't we just throw away electronics? <laughs> well, uh, electronics have lots of thing in, things in them that are uh, hazardous to the environment. Um, if you go back to the old cathode tube uh, television and monitor, uh, the cathode tubes works by... Um, directing the electrons at a screen, a phosphorus screen, and then the electrons bounce back, and that's why the uh, CRT tube has a funnel in it. And that funnel glass contains a high percentage of lead, almost uh, mm. 10 to 25% lead in the funnel glass to stream the electrons back to the capacitor. So I have in my hand here, and, and your listeners can't see this, but I have a four pound lead weight. Uh, this is how much lead is in the average uh, medium sized cathode ray tube television. I have it about an inch above the table. And uh, it's about the size of a billfold. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe your listeners heard that, but that's how I'm much sure lead. <laughs> so that's how much lead is in a typical television set. And it's it's fun to give a tour and have a, a kid hold out their hand and see if they can you know catch this when I kind of drop right. it from that height. Um, so lead is obviously dangerous for the environment. Um, other things in uh, electronics that are dangerous. Uh, you know, you, I talk about the CRTs that have lead in them, but then you say, what about a flat panel? Well, the flat panel backlight is a, usually a fluorescent light, a high-intensity fluorescent light, so there's a lot of mercury in those. Mm. Um, aside from the other precious metals and um, contaminants, uh, all circuit boards are a tin lead solder. The silver stuff you see on a circuit board, that's all lead, too. So that has to be recycled. And uh, when you put an electronic in a landfill, uh, landfills uh, are wet and the uh, leachate is usually acidic so it dissolves the lead right away and the lead can leach into the groundwater. So it's very important that you recycle your, all your electronics. Awesome. So um, yeah, let's say that I brought a laptop with me <laughs> out here too. That's probably, that's eh, not quite as uh, heavy as the <laughs> lead that you held up. Um, but yeah, like what, what process does this thing go through after I drop it off? Well, laptops are one of the things that would get reused. Now, this laptop you showed me is damaged, mm -hmm. so it wouldn't be reused but it would or refurbished, but it, uh, the components would be reused. Now, first thing that they would do is they would take this laptop um, and they would take the, the hard drive out and they would uh, determine if they could refurbish that or reuse that. And if they do, they, they wipe all the data from it um, and it's reused. Um, even on a hard drive on a, on a tablet like this laptop, um, there's probably several wafers on that hard drive. And if the hard drive itself can't be reused, the wafers can be. Um, okay. So they'll, they'll wipe the hard drive, take one of the five wafers out of it, um, and reuse that. Um, 
the the laptop also has many microchips on it. Uh, there's a mother chip, um, many other chips, and they will all remove those chips, and those will get um, sold down the line as in the chip market. If you can imagine going to a hardware store and looking at all the con containers that control contain the nuts and bolts, that's um, about a tenth of what uh, dynamic recycling or recycle will have for microchips. They they take all the chips off and they sort them by type and mm -hmm. they put there's a there's a wall that so they you have mean to, one tenth like by number. Well, there's ten times as many than a hardware okay. store. These little okay. computer or these little chip bins and they sort the bins into the chip or the chips into the bins and then they're sold uh, on the aftermarket. So I'm going to point to your tablet here. There's might be a chip in this tablet that'll uh, be sorted, removed from the circuit board, sorted. Uh, sold either a mass market or uh, on their own store, and they sell on eBay too. Um, there's quite a chip market out there. Mm -hmm. um, and then that chip will be maybe exported back to Japan, put in another device, and then come back to the United States. So this okay. chip, in chips in this laptop, might come back as chips in a remote control truck or something like that. Uh, a microchip has what they call an infant mortality. Uh, infant mortality is if a microchip under normal conditions that it was designed for, if it lasts 100 hours, it's going to last 100,000 hours. Microchips mm -hmm. are very expensive to make, and they know that it's good because it's on a component, and they can test it, and then they ship it off and reuse it. So we're talking, like, because I, I know that a lot of, like, laptops and, you know, phones, smaller, smaller devices like that, uh, you know, they have to design, like, the shape of the motherboard with the shape of the actual like chassis in mind right um but you're talking about like taking individual tiny pieces off of those components this samsung chromebook that you've shown me here will have a motherboard in it mm -hmm. and it has many many chips on it it mm -hmm. has the memory chips it has a processor chip so what they will do actually do is they put the chip on a on a warming board and it melts the solder and they're able to remove all the little oh. chips from that board and then they sort those out and then that's the big hardware style uh, store hardware store things it's it might be 16 feet long eight feet high just for all the little chips that they get and they put them in there like that and then they sell those awesome yeah um, so what about are, are there any parts that can't be reused in that repurposed in that way well, the one that we're talking about reuse or repurposed, um, what happens then next is um, this: all the components taken out part of this, this whole thing would be shredded, including what's left of the circuit board. And then it's down to um, pieces smaller than a dime. And then it goes, all the different components are either then sorted out with air, meaning that... Um, there's an optical sorter and it'll push it away from push it out through air like you've maybe seen in recycling centers. But then the the, the special thing about uh, dynamic recycling that they do is they have eddy currents and an eddy current can separate different kinds of metal. So all the copper in here, pieces of dime, size of dimes are smaller. All the aluminum, all the lead, all the silver, all the gold, all the palladium, all get sorted out into different recycling streams and then. It's not recycling anymore because all those things are precious metal and it's just processing the precious metal. So you get the gold, you get the copper, you get the aluminum, uh, the palladium even out of there. Um, laptops are very easy to recycle because I don't have to pay for them. I actually get paid per pound. I think it's $2 a pound for my, my recycling company. It pays me $2 a pound 
for recycling uh, laptops and four dollars a pound for recycling phones. So that's why you can you can have you see some once in a while you see the Boy Scouts collecting cell phones for recycling because it's a fundraiser for them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what about the other end? What 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 is like the hardest thing to recycle, or the uh, or, or well the it most costs the most the most dangerous thing. Let's let's go with that. The most dangerous thing when in uh, dealing with electronic waste is the lithium-ion battery. Now we've mm. all heard of all lithium-ion batteries uh, fires and what they can do. And there was the, I guess the hoverboards, if you remember, a couple years yeah. ago that were or, always they're exploding. Or you know the laptop, the Samsung Note Eight, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, right. The the laptop in the overhead compartment on the airplane, um, it gets too insulated and the hard drive is spinning and it gets real hot and then the lithium battery goes off. And that's a that's a lithium-ion batteries. It's a self-containing fire. It supplies its own oxygen, so mm. depleting oxygen doesn't work. We have special fire extinguishers. It's called a D fire extinguisher for metal fires. Um, the lithium-ion batteries we don't even store inside our facility. We have a special area where we store them that's outside the fire door in case they go. Um, most hazardous waste facilities, uh, electronic processing facilities, if they do have a fire, you can blame it on a lithium-ion battery. Um, I, as far as that's as far as the most dangerous part of the electronics is the battery and the power power source. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh, are are there any cases where like um, like alloys have to be separated into their component metals or? Elements? Well, I don't know how. Like I mentioned, the the silver tin uh, solder that is the silver stuff you see on a circuit board. Mm-hmm. That is that is all collected together, and then when it's smelted, the two metals melt at different temperatures. Okay. So you would be able to separate the silver and the uh, the the lead and the tin out of there. Okay. Cool. Um. Do you have just kind of like a rough estimate of like what percent of of like by mass, you know, what percent of, sure. of a laptop would be able to be repurposed? Well, repurposed and recycled are two different things. I don't right. know the percentage of repurposed. So this laptop, some of the stuff will be repurposed and, and reused as chips and hard drives, as we just discussed before. But dynamic recycling claims a 100% recycling uh, goal and uh, achieving. That is if uh, you're including um, waste to energy, meaning that you ah. take it, take it, so imagine an old console TV, they can 100% recycle that because they're going to take the wood that's obviously, um, I mean, lots of people make aquariums out of their old console TVs and stuff. Sure. And cool, kitschy stuff. But that wood gets ground up and burned uh, for energy recovery. So it's replacing uh, coal or gas or whatever. And um, that's oh, one, one of the... be careful with uh, hitting oh, the table because I, I heard that. We're going to edit it out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fix it in post. <laughs> in post um get ba- getting back um a 100 recycling goal um if you count waste to energy some of the stuff is burned some of the, the the wood is burned from the console tvs some computer cabinets um or the especially the on the older crt monitors some of the plastic is weird plastic that they don't use anymore and that can't be recycled but that gets ground up and burned for energy recovery okay yeah um you mentioned that like the very first thing that is typically done is you take the hard drive out and see if you can you mm-hmm. reuse any of those uh, wafers. Um, how about the data security for the person who brought it in? Like what what's done to ensure that nobody will be able to read old data? Right. Well, we we have a, a security par- process here at the Environmental Center where we take your your laptop or your hard drive or your 
or your computer and anything with a memory is immediately put on our uh, in our secure area and locked um, and with no access and then it's shipped to uh, our, our recycling company where it's uh, we get a receipt for it's sealed uh, locked and sealed so we know that people aren't tampered, tampering with it on the way and then they um, will right away log it in uh, into a secure area and everything's in a secure area until the, the hard drives are wiped off. And so they, they wipe a hard drive to the Department of Defense standards and they only wipe the ones that they're going to they're gonna repurpose or reuse. The ones that are going to be processed, they go right to the shredder. Okay. So uh, we just ask that you don't have to worry about your data and um, if you're really into recycling and reuse, don't damage it. A lot of people will bring a hard drive with a hole drilled in it or you know, hit it a couple times with a hammer or whatever just because they, they're worried about their data. So you can w- delete all your data at home, but for sure anything left on there is going to be, uh, I think they read and write, overwrite the data uh, seven to ten times. So um, they just put X's and O's or ones and zeros on it, and it's just nonsense. And they fill up the whole drive with that, and they wipe that off, and they do that ten times to make sure every sector is deleted. Sorry. Um, let's see. We pretty much covered where where components go after this facility. Um, yeah, you talked about CRTs. Are there any any kinds of devices that are too old to be recycled? No, we t- if it's from your household, we'll take it. Um, the big CRTs are fun to get. They weigh a lot. Um, they were trying to make some pretty big CRTs towards the end of the CRT you know trend. Um, the other the other interesting thing to do, to see is the old rear screen projection TVs that are. Um, Basically, you need a pickup truck to get them here. They're just huge. And they're maybe 10 or 12 years old, but they were $5,000 when the people bought them. And now you can replace a $5,000 rear panel projecting that's 65 inches with a flat panel monitor that's 65 inches and it's less than three, four hundred dollars Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how about things like uh, printer cartridges? Is that covered? Printer cartridges, as we would encourage you, we, we, we accept printer cartridges here and, and it's, it's covered. Uh, on what we take, but we do encourage you uh, to kind of upcycle those and bring those back to where you buy them and you get a credit at more mm-hmm. stores for that. But um, certainly uh, outdated printer cartridges or, or printer cartridges from uh, printers you don't have anymore or have gone um, gone away, we'll take those and sometimes we'll put those out in the free product room and you can find them here. Um. Yeah, hazardous chemicals. I mean, obviously the lithium-ion batteries definitely have uh, hazardous chemicals. Anything else that uh, that's interesting to talk about? Um, like I said, the lead and the mercury um, and the residual electrical current in some electronics are the concerns for electronic recycling. I could talk to you a lot about household hazardous waste and the chemicals we get in and how dangerous those are. We end up having the bomb squad come once or twice a year to get to get chemicals that people bring in that they shouldn't. Um, there's some uh, very explosive uh, peroxide formers out there that uh, people have in their basement, and uh, we just ask you for, to be careful when you're transporting your stuff here. As far as health concerns for my employees here, um, we're, we're just handling stuff. We, uh, we don't 
process. So if unloading a TV and putting it in a box is essentially what we do with televisions and computers and stuff. So we don't really worry about light exposure. Uh, the same with the mercury lamps in the back of the uh, flat panels. And once in a while, one will break, and are we concerned about the mercury getting affecting SES? And that's why we wear gloves and, and PPE, uh, other per personal protective equipment, other personal protective equipment, um, just uh, to protect ourselves in that process. So it's, you really have to worry about the people down the line that are disassembling the CRTs. Mm -hmm. And there's some very safe room practices they have uh, um, to separate, like I mentioned earlier, the front of a CRT television, the, the old tube kind, uh, does not have any lead in it, but the back tube has. And if you can so sort those out, separate those panels out uh, safely, uh, break that seal, you can put the leaded glass over here and the non-leaded glass over here, and that assists your uh, recycling. And the, the CRT leaded glass is the hardest to recycle of all the components. Um, right now, I'm pretty sure it's going to... Uh, floor tile they uh, emulsify the glass and um, encase it in a floor tile and it's vitrification so the lead doesn't react anymore with the environment into a floor tile cool um anything else that you would like people to know about uh, electronics recycling or this facility in particular i think we covered everything that i want um let's see well be sure to recycle your electronics uh we are open to all residents of the Metropolitan County here at the Washington County Environmental Center through a reciprocal use agreement with other counties. Uh, 4039 Cottage Grove Drive or check our website at uh, Washington County and click on Environmental Center. Sweet. Um, let's see. My phone is getting low on battery, so I'm going to plug that in. Feel free. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, do you, is there anything in the facility that uh, that you think it would be useful for me to see? Um, well, I don't know how it's going to... I'll show you around and you can decide if you want to... Uh, or things that make interesting sounds. <laughs> oh. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we have interesting sounds. Um, I mean, we could record a TV dropped into a into a box, but that's, mm -hmm. that's no fun, is it? No. Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, um, the, um, It's just a crash. Yeah, I know um, you were talking about the like the optical machines that then. No, you know, I don't have any of that yeah. here. That's not processable. So, although, if you wanted to, I could hook you up with Kirk at uh, uh, Dynamic Recycling for a tour down there. That would mm -hmm. have some cool sounds if you wanted to continue this, but maybe not. Maybe now I, I looked at you. You're kind of a science electronics podcast. And I looked at your yeah. podcast. Like, okay, so um, let's see. What to show you? I'd you know we could go walk around and. Um I work at Harding High School, um, east side of St. Paul. Wow. Yeah, um, and I. I live in Frogtown, so it's going to be an even, uh, even further ride back. River. Uh, I don't know. Google Maps will guide me. <laughs> Commodore oh, 16. Com Commodore 16. Wow. Right. Um, Matthew. This is what I say on the tours: is Matthew Broderick in both War okay. Games and Ferris Bueller's Day Off had a Commodore 64. That's yeah. 
would be two generations after this one. I have I have a Commodore 64 in my classroom. I've got a little yeah like old electronics. Okay. So uh, this museum. this one is the computer um, is with no operating system on it, so the operating system has to load every time. Oh. So and then and it's on a TV. So this this is the the whole thing that was in that box is right there, and I'm sure it was basic and um, mm -hmm. uh, so. This is a, a blue chip um, computer, um, I, which is disappointing. I, I, I had a um, Cray computer, tried to kind of break into the, the home computing market at one point. Okay. And so I had a Cray computer about of this vintage, and I don't know what happened to it. Um, but the Sony Watchmen there is a TV. Uh -huh. Oh, wow, yeah. And um, that TV, Sony Watchmen, was bought, and if you kind of Cream your neck, you can see the two hundred and fifty dollars in nineteen eighty four at Dayton's Home Electronics. So that ends up uh, two hundred and fifty dollars for that little TV in nineteen eighty four. Is ends up at about twenty two hundred dollars in two thousand nineteen. Minnesota Twins branded and everything. Yes, it is, right. <laughs> um, oh, one more kind of electronic thing to see in the case here is these um, LA lights. It's the first ever pair of uh, light up sneaker. Oh, uh, and um, the light-up sneaker, um, you see, you can see right there um, the little light, and it was the f one of the first pairs of light-up sneakers, but they decided to do, this is about 1994, they decided to use mercury uh, in the shoe to make the light go on and off because it jiggles around mercury and it okay. makes the contact, doesn't make the contact. What so could when go wrong? Well, <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong, right? <laughs> well, the little kids like to take, see, figure out how things work, so right. they were taking apart the little capsule with the mercury and getting exposed to mercury. So they had a, that that recall. Um, mercury was banned in consumer products in 1994. So mm. LA Gear went ahead and did it, and that that little bit of mercury almost bankrupts the whole company. Oh that wow! Very wow. nearly went out of business. I'm going to take a picture of this cabinet. <laughs> Maybe I'll put that in the show notes. That's pretty awesome. I have one more little fun electronic thing to show you that you might want to. This here. No, we're going to have to go to the other storage room. This is this is a TV. Um, oh, that's. Uh, so, so the store in the clear TVs is a clear CRT TV. Yeah. They make a clear flat panel. This is from Stillwater Prison. So if you're a prisoner in Stillwater, okay, so you you, you, you can make you buy the TV. You see, right? Oh. So you have to buy the TV out of your. What do they ever say on the new orange is the new black? There's the the something account that you have, mm -hmm. the, the whatever account. So they make you buy this TV, and so you can't hide your contraband in there, right? Right. And even if you had a screwdriver, um, and they they put a seal, see, tamper-proof seal uh, uh -huh. on it and everything. So even if you could figure out how to foil the tamper-proof seal, you could put your contraband, your, your shiv or whatever in there. Sure. And, uh, but you can't because it's, it's a clear television. And so, mm -hmm. so why we get them in is um, when you leave prison, because you bought it, you get to take it with you. Mm. So then it becomes a household hazardous waste. So I can see if I can get the key to this other room because it's a really cool television. And so this, so this room is 
Yeah, I'm sorry. This literally is literally just free. Everything free you want here is free. Yes. Okay. And so th these are items that you have, that people have dropped off, and everything you see in this room is um, something that people bring here and they don't want anymore. Mm -hmm. And instead of instead of us paying for proper disposal, we put it out here, and we do some processing of this too. So this five-gallon pail here is interior latex paint. And what happens is that five-gallon pail came in and it was maybe half full, but who wants two and a half gallons of paint? Right. And who wants a half a gallon of the one gallons, right? So we take the half gallons of the one gallons and we put three or four of them in there until we get a full five. We shake it up. We put a little dot on the top and say, this is the color. And then we put a label on here that says, hey, this is interior latex paint. You want to know how to clean it up? Check the internet, or we can give you a <laughs> You know, sure. it's just interior latex paints. That, you know. I've done that at home. Mix mm. my own custom colors together. Yeah. Mm. This and that, and I'll dump them all in a five gallon bucket and stir it up. I even made a really nice color for one of our bedrooms downstairs. Sure, it's perfect. But I, it's hard to match when you go to the Menards. Right. <laughs> I'd be really nervous to do that because I know nothing about like color science. And okay, you know, okay. when, I, when I mix these two, what's going to happen? Who knows? You learned that in grade school. Mm -hmm. Did you forget? Well, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, there's. In addition to like you know the different colors, there's hues and you know there's yeah. all kinds of different levels for everything. Pro tip, uh, the best way to make friends on a bus is to have leftover pizza with you. <laughs> My wife and I were coming home from uh, her mom's place one evening at like 11 o'clock and we ended up on like a very crowded bus. And so you bike everywhere. Yep. That is so cool. I don't, yeah, I don't own a car. So this, is, well, that, there's that one, but look at this one. Oh, okay. This is a TV inside a suitcase. Yeah. Wow. That's so. If you look at this TV, this is mm -hmm. from this television. I, I did a little research on it. Um, it predates broadcast television in the Metropolitan. It's about a 1953 wow. television. And if I put my iPhone 8 Plus on this screen, it's about the same size. About the same size. And this is a whole suitcase-sized cabinet we're looking at here. And. Um, this looks like it would be like, you know, an oscillator uh, yes. visualization yes. It's, screen. It's, it is an oscillator. It's about the size of an oscillator, and then the, but you have the two, three, four, you know, the channels and the vertical and the horizontal hold, which kids today don't know anything about. And um, those are vocabulary and, words to me. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you used to, you used to, um, if the TV would go like this, it'd start rolling. Mm. And, and so you adjust the vertical hold. And then the horizontal is going to start going this way. Okay. So, um, yeah. So you'd have to adjust it because the TV would start rolling up from uh -huh. top to bottom or bottom to top, and you just just a little adjust that, and it would stop. Okay. And then once in a while, you get it it stop in the middle, and you'd have to go back and so. That's very cool. So. That's my favorite. So, wow, so you're saying that broadcast television, we didn't have broadcast television in the metro area until the 50s? Yeah. Wow, okay. I would have figured we would have had it earlier. Well, television is post-World War II, 
Right. Yep. So, um, so mid forties at the earliest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Twentieth century topics. <laughs> okay, that's cool. about all I got. Unless you want to go out, to, you want to go out to the warehouse and look around. We um. Well, yeah. I mean, I've got a laptop to drop off anyway. So. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, you can just leave it there. I'll take care of it. But come on right. out here. We'll Sorry. Thank you. We're going to wait until this, this one goes by here. So all these boxes you see here are the different sorts of electronics. Um, we sort um, monitors um, into two kinds of monitors. There's flat panel monitors, flat panel, excuse me, uh, CRT monitors, and then separately flat panel televisions and CRT televisions. So that's four sorts right there. And then there's one for uh, computer towers, there's one for laptops, there's one for non-consumer electronics, meaning uh, things that are not peripheral to a television or a computer, and then there's um, you know, we keep wire and lap <laughs> laptops uh, are separately. Um, so your laptop that you brought in will not go there. Yeah, I'm not seeing too many helpful labels on these. Um, no, these are old labels here. These, we, these boxes are reused re re four or five times. I see some all-in-one computer stations, hard drives. Oh wow! Again, CRT computers, computer monitors. Um, there's seven or eight boxes of different kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see a, a little. CD player, right. a and Wii Fit board. Yeah, and again, not peripheral, uh, uh, not peripheral to a computer or a television. Mm -hmm. A Wii Fit, probably you could call peripheral, but it's just going to go in that that box anyway. So awesome. Microwaves, tower power CDs go on this, or tower computers go on this uh, yeah. pile here, and they're stacked up neat. Does does the you know modular nature of desktop computers does that make them like orders of magnitude easier to recycle or well, does it, it not just, actually the, make the, that much the shipping difference? is easier the, the guys like to play jenga when they put them here and they <laughs> try and get a the the level see you can make that be the bottom box mm -hmm. the leveler you get it on the top because then you put another box on top of it inside the semi <laughs> Is there is there a difference between like uh, LCD panel screens and uh, OLED panel screens for the purposes of recycling them? Um, what's the second LCD and what? Um, AMOLED, oh. like LED. Um, yeah. No, the flat panel is flat panel. Okay. So um, I'm sure when it gets to dynamic, there'll be a difference in how they process it, but the what we get charged and how we package it. So this is our. Uh, semi-filled with uh, electronics. 
This is 52 feet down, so I can get um, 52 boxes up and down, two positions, 48 or 52, depending on how they go, uh, boxes on this truck. And it'll weigh about between 28 and 35,000 pounds. Um, and this just goes to Janesville, or uh, excuse me, uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, and gets processed. Is this one of those rear projection TVs that you were talking about? No. No. That is just a big CRT. Okay. Oh, that? Yeah, and that's a small one. Okay. They're usually almost six feet high, and they roll around. And there's, down here, there's there's three color projectors. Um, okay. You know, the three and, and then there are, like, mirrors there's inside there. a mirror inside, and it projects onto the little screen. You can tell that's, that's oh, just... Oh, sure. Okay. That's just plastic, so uh -huh. it's a rear screen projection. And the, these come in, and they're six feet tall and 60 inches wide at the diagonal, and... Uh, yeah. Very important. Here's an old wooden console that I was talking about earlier. So, quasar. Is that just really a quasar? Yeah, that's what it says. Very nice. Nice. Well, uh, let's go place my laptop in the correct bin and. Uh, you have it in your back backpack there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I wasn't sure where we were gonna go, so I packed up all my stuff. Right, right next to a Sony Vio. <laughs> I used to have a Sony Vio. That, that's a well-loved computer. Lots of stickers on it. Okay, well, just to make it official, we're going to have Tay scan your driver's license. Oh, you probably don't have a driver's license. Uh, I do. Okay. I do have one. Tay, you scan his driver's license. He's a participant now. Oh, Kevin. Let me get it out. Hang on. It's all right. That's quite the bag. Yeah, it uh, it doubles as a backpack and a pannier, so I can attach it to my cargo rack on my bike. Yeah. The uh, downside is that it's like one giant cavernous <laughs> pocket. So yeah, here we go. Here's my wallet. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, any other questions? No, I think that's about it. I hope you did it with Will. This has been a, a really, really fun episode to work on. Thank you. I look forward to listening. I have a radio face, so <laughs> should be good. Yeah. Uh, restrooms are right there if you want to go oh, before yes. you leave. Um, <laughs>
Have you signed up? Online. Yes. <laughs>